but the ah, joke. The- ah, ah, ah. <laughs> Damaged. What if instead of off screen, we actually do see Anakin really kind of take it to the younglings, like just kind of really just run through them, like, straight up murdering. Yeah, children. like we just we yeah. see it. Like we no, just, but he's still a good guy. Right. I mean, Fuck like, you. He's Darth Vader. He killed children. Right. <laughs> He also, off-screen, commits genocide against the entire race of Duskin Raiders in the second film. But let's talk more about those trade regulations. (laughs) (laughs) That's the real (laughs) villain here. I really enjoy the Predator not only for his technology. I thought he was going to say the pedophile. (laughs) You said pet, and I'm like, whoa. No, I don't. No. (laughs) I got to watch these movies. There are no pedophiles on my list, okay? No. <laughs> Jesus fuck. Okay. He blew up seven planets, but definitely didn't diddle a kid. His curved dildo sword in order <laughs> wow! to like, decap. It looks like a fucking ribbed dildo. How- Alex, you were right on about talking about charisma. I know Thanos is going to be on your list, so just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a personality. <laughs> Welcome into Film Tank, the weekly podcast that covers both new and classic cinema. On this episode of Film Tank, we discuss our top six favorite film villains. You best start believing in ghost stories. You're in one. If you would like to get in touch with Film Tank, you can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, filmtankshow.com, or on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Diekman. Hey there again, everybody, and welcome back into Film Tank. This is episode 68, and I am Alex Diekman, along with the usual guys here, Nick Cheney and Toussaint Egan. Whoop, whoop! What up? You guys are excited. I like it. I like yeah. the enthusiasm. Sometimes we just don't have it, but what? this week we do. We're the bad guys. It's what we do. That's the second time you've said that line. <laughs> it's a really shit line. He's not going to let it go. I know, but He's we're talking about villains today, so I That's felt true. like I had to. Can you please tell please tell me that Margot Robbie's uh, Harley Quinn, whose movie hasn't even come out yet, is on your list? Because that'd be great. You just explain why she wouldn't be on not, the list. Not anymore. <laughs> she's kind of owning Summer, though, right? Because she's going to be in Tarzan, too, right? And she then is. This, and she's yeah. going to be in that uh, movie about Nancy Kerrigan getting her uh, leg brought out. Just to uh, announce today. Oh, yeah, right, Tanya, right, Harding. Yeah, Tanya Harding. Tanya Harding. Biopic. Oh, I remember yeah. that. Oh. I was thinking of Terry Schiavo for a moment. Uh, <laughs> what the fuck? I know. Man? I was like, why is she? <laughs> That's a completely different movie. Jesus. <laughs> they should probably. You're the of... real villain. No, <laughs> I'm just thinking of like just names from the 90s. I like, know. I, you know, I, I don't know. You probably want to get somebody that doesn't have like that good of acting skills for that, right? Because it's. For, of her Terry Schiavo? Yeah, because she wow. just kind of lays there. You know, she had a life. <laughs> well, not that the public knows about. Oh, okay, Boy. anyway. So anyways. Who's our guest? Also with us today. Terry uh, Schiavo. Welcome. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, dear. Why are you doing this? This is the villain episode. Yeah, I know. So anything so we we're say. Going, so. We're going to embrace the dark side. <laughs> oh, God. And, the, and that worked because there was yeah. complete silence after Nick said that. So it totally worked. <laughs> Okay, so, go. 
So uh, Brian Turnbaugh, who joined us for the Batman vs. Superman marathon uh, did episode. Did we almost break four hours with that episode? Oh, it, was, it, was like, it was getting up there. This episode might not even be as long as that yeah. episode. <laughs> we'll see. You Which, never know. <laughs> Our <laughs> top was... six episodes usually do go for, for a bit, but oh, three yeah. hours, I don't know. But there's that a structure was... to it. Yeah. That was, you know, just... I just remember my wife. I came home. She's like... How could you talk about that movie for that long? I think it went longer than the actual movie, right? I think we. So. Yeah, yeah. We, now, to, well, to be fair, we did the, talk about the Marvel for cut quite a, or the R-rated cut because the R-rated cut goes to 180 minutes. We're not Ooh. reviewing that. We're not going to watch that. We're no, not going to acknowledge it. We're not going to. That could be a weekend review no, of a future episode. <laughs> Maybe. But uh, if you haven't been able to tease out, we are talking about the villains today. It's a top six villains, and unlike some of our previous top six episodes, we really left this one wide open to interpretation. So I think that's going to be good, because I think we're going to have a very diverse group of lists. Maybe not. Maybe we won't. We'll see. But I, th- I think we're going to be a little all over the place, which which is going to be good, I think. Yeah. So uh, Nick is a popular person to start us off, and oh I, I think we should start with him okay. on this top six episode with his number six villain of all time. All right. Well, this is number six because it's one of the most memorable for, for my film going experience, but there's nothing to it. It's not deep at all. It's not complex. And uh, it is also the only female villain on hmm. my list. Huh. Um and that's uh, Sarah Michelle Keller's portrayal of Catherine Martell in Cruel Intentions. Yes, of course. <laughs> okay. Because I, that movie is one of my guilty pleasures, but I think it's also more than that. I, I actually think it's a great use of the teen, trashy melodrama genre that happens to feature uh, Sarah Michelle Keller playing a stepsister that bargains with her stepbrother to deflower the head schoolgirl in exchange for having sex with her. I mean, you don't really... Not just any sex. <laughs> wait, <laughs> with her brother? Yeah. You can... Hold on. Stepbrother. Uh, Nick, wait. Just a yeah. quick question. Yeah. This was a modern reimagining of Dangerous Liaisons, correct? Yes, that is correct. Which, who was playing... So Uma Thurman would have been the... She was the one that was to be deflowered, but who was the... Uh, no, Reese Witherspoon. Wait, no, I think no, no, it's oh, it's 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 okay. Yeah. Right, right, They're right. both blondes. Yes. Though. Anyway. <laughs> Ooh. Um, you know, I have never actually seen... Why do I want to say it was like... Dangerous Liaisons. Although... Michelle Pfeiffer. Why do I want to say that? That sounds... I don't know. That's the film that... The, the one you're talking about, Nick. That's the one that has... John uh, Malkovich. I want to say... Keanu the Reeves. Verve's Bittersweet Symphony, right? As yes. the finale, yes. Yeah. Not Dangerous Liaisons. That's what everybody knows it for. Right. No, that's not Dangerous. what everybody knows it for, but... Actually, that's... <laughs> I was going to yeah. say... No, it's not. It's part of why everybody knows that film. No, the, the reason why everybody knows that is because of Selma Blair and Sarah Michelle Geller making out. Yes. I didn't know that. And this, <laughs> and, because and the you're scene. not everybody. You've yeah. also never even heard of Christmas Vacation. So. <laughs> and the scene also that I just kind of referenced where... Yes, you can put it anywhere. Yes. Mm-hmm. So The only reason I knew about that film was because Sarah Michelle Geller was in it and it also had Bittersweet Symphony in it. Yeah. Um, it is Michelle Pfeiffer, by the way. There you go. I, I really should see it because I love this ridiculous... <laughs> remake but i've never seen the that one um but yeah it's just her performance on it is half just great casting because she definitely looks the part of that person that uh, any heterosexual sane male would do anything to uh do unspeakable acts nah, to she's a sociopath brah okay uh, <laughs> i said look the part i didn't say oh, okay yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Anyway, um, <laughs> but uh, throughout that whole movie, what I do like is the way she plays the character because as much as one could just watch it and think that she's just this kind of evil villain who just likes manipulating people, that's one layer to it. But what I also like is the more you watch it, the more you start to wonder how much she gets out of these transactions that she sets up to the point where she's maybe a sociopath but also just kind of self-loathing and the way like she wants this more badly than like say Ryan Phillips' character wants it, uh, you know, this tryst between them and and what the length she'll go to do and to get that and just the way she'll debase herself and and it leads to one of the greatest uh comeuppance too for a villain uh which is yes scored by the the verbs bittersweet symphony which is so 90s and yet also so cathartic it's one of the quintessential 90s songs next to like the google dolls iris and and you get the uh the the, is it it her father or or uh, a parent or, or someone she knows coming up and and literally taking apart her cross necklace to reveal the cocaine falling out of it. It's the like, <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah it, it's not the father. That's but awesome. It, it's been like a year or two since I've seen it, but I believe that's like the school principal or okay. something like that. Yeah. But yeah, like when when they're there at the funeral, so to speak, for the uh, for Ryan Phillips' character. Yeah, when she's doing that in the bathroom, and yeah, it's just it's just a wonderfully fucked up movie, and I feel like it mostly works because of her and mm-hmm. uh, some of those ridiculous scenes like when um, she gets Ryan Philippe to give her like a back rub and just the way she can, even though he's performing the act, she's in complete control of what he's doing and what she's doing and uh, that's probably the only one on my list where a character uses sexuality as their main weapon, but it's certainly a thing that a lot of villains can do. Uh, you know, we don't. Well, really I like see. that idea. What you're saying though about like what exactly was her motivation, right? So was she doing this because uh, she enjoyed the manipulation? But you said that she was maybe self loathing and that this is the only thing I know what to do and it's, yeah. it's, it's I, I think that it, it, it's like a, it's like a, it could be a product of me seeing it maybe a, a few too many times and just not accepting so it for it's the like a sunk loss fallacy she just can't dig herself out of this because yeah. it's the only uh, way she knows I yeah. like that I will say uh, and this is coming from someone who hasn't seen the film in quite a long time it does seem uh, that before the film begins that her and Ryan Philippe have been going back and forth on this for quite some time. Yeah. So it's not like it's just her. Yeah. Yeah. She just happens to be the one who doesn't change her ways throughout this film. Right. And yeah, she's the one who like the minute Ryan Philippe's character does that axis shift where he goes from kind of just sex to love with the, like that's where she feels the ultimate betrayal that Mm -hmm. someone else has kind of evolved past her state and she can't face that fact. So I actually, you know, like I I say, it's pretty much the plot of Crimson Peak. (laughs) I I suppose so. (laughs) Um, So I mean, I, my number six, because like I said, it's not particularly deep or complex, but I feel like there's enough there to just make it, for me at least, completely engaging to watch from start to finish. And I will admit I wanted to kind of, not shoehorn, but to make sure I had at least one female villain. And when I did some research, I was surprised how poor the selection is. Not because women can't be villains, but apparently Hollywood thinks that because it's such a small pool that are you know, your tastes are gonna vary, so you might not like the most famous examples or whatever. And this was the one that the minute I did see it, I was like, Oh absolutely. Uh so I was just gonna say, um, if I can take the baton and go Please on to do. my number six. Uh when I was looking at my list and in kind of finalizing it, I was I was happy with my six selections, but I was like, I don't have anyone who isn't white and I don't have anyone who's a female on my list. Shame. Well, it, 
uh, when I looked back at all the villains that I had put on my list, there weren't many of either. So, yeah. I, well, there, there's also, especially to the not white, uh, shall we say, point is that there, there's a danger in in making that choice because on the one hand we should have equality and like everybody but on the other hand you will get criticized and rightly so if you make your character a different race to be villainous and then aren't careful to not make that be unless the plot calls for it number six denzel washington from training day number five denzel washington from training day number four (laughs) denzel washington from training day (laughs) okay um diversity (laughs) well yeah but i'm just saying like like when you're writing that like that's the hard thing i think to cast because i think there absolutely should be diversity in any type of role but we are also now because we have so few diversity everything is scrutinized so i also wonder if that's like that pressure of like well if we have a black person here we can't have like a law enforcement shooting him or something like that. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds like crazy, but it's true. Yeah. Well, uh, and, I, and I wanted to bring up as I as I mentioned that that I didn't have any females on my grand. You know, just threw a bunch of names out on a paper and picked six out of them that I, I really wanted to put on my list. So I think I had like twenty five or something like that originally that I that I started Whoa. with, but. No females on there, and only one African American, and that was Denzel Washington as Frank it, Lucas in American Gangster. Uh, Not the film you were talking yeah. about, oh. but still Denzel. Throwing so, me a curveball, yeah. Uh, but I wanted to mention him before we get started, just because I, I feel like we we should try to be a little more, uh, you know, top six villains so white. Right. So black people can be antagonists <laughs> too. Yeah, yeah, they really can. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, uh, starting my top six off. In the Pirates of the Caribbean series with Captain Barbosa, who just, um, and this is specifically from the Black Pearl, uh, Curse of the Black Pearl. Jeffrey Rush character? Yeah. Okay, I just want to yeah. make sure it's been a while. Um, his character in the first film is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, first Pirates of the Caribbean film is one of my favorite films of all time. Um, easily in my top ten. And it's his character that really drew me into the film just because of all the small details of his character from his costume to his weird uh, sword knowledge, which is just kind of bizarre for for a film to have something so detailed of, of having a specific style of sword play that he does when he's fighting, um, you know, from the, the feather in his cap to kind of his beard that he has. And the way he talks is just so... Oh, it's the best. It's just yeah. so ridiculously elegant, but also very piratey at the same time. And uh, his character and Jeffrey Rush's portrayal in the film always just drew me into the entire series. And, and a lot of people go back time after time for Jack Sparrow. But I think it is telling that the series went out of their way to bring Jeffrey Rush back from the dead to force <laughs> yeah. him into the other films. Yeah. Going to say to, something to Yeah, going to the point of uh, Barboza's like, intonation is, is able to, to speak because he is very eloquent, even though he's still very grungy and mm-hmm. very, very pirate. It's like, I imagine him as being like one of those kinds of villains that grew up being a pirate, like either on his own or under somebody else. And they probably kidnapped somebody who was like this very meek scholar and it like forced him to actually like teach him because there are literate villains who otherwise come from very, um, uh, unassuming and very, very, like, uh, otherwise non-literate background. So yeah, it's always interesting. And I, I have to say, there are a lot of scenes and specific lines in the film that I that I absolutely love from Joffrey Rush, as I do from other characters, because I, I really enjoy the film and the, and the kind of weird dialogue that they have throughout uh, the first Pirates of the Caribbean film. 
But I think one of my favorite moments from the definitely from the series and uh, from this list in terms of uh, either dialogue that also coincides with what you're seeing on the screen involves the famous um, Moon Knight boat scene uh, where all of the pirates turn to their skeleton. And this is a 2003 film, and this was like pretty early on really good CGI. Mm-hmm. Like this is this is like. Not, I'm not going to say like a benchmark, but this scene was very... It holds up. Yeah. yeah. Important in, in sort of the, the arc of CGI becoming more and more prevalent in the Phillips, which may or may not be a good thing, but it was really good here. Um, and earlier on in the scene, Joffrey Roch is talking with Kara Knightley's character and saying that she doesn't really believe in ghost stories. And the scene where he's walking and he is still in his human form and says, you better start believing in ghost stories because you're in one as he turns ah, into the skeleton. It's just fabulous. Point, yeah. Yes. So I still remember watching. I, I saw the movie in the theaters, but I still remember watching the trailer for yeah. the first time in the theater. And that I think that was the big money shot of a trailer for me, at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I still literally remember. Like, I have memories, which is pretty rare for watching a trailer of that, uh, you know, because you're in one. Like, just... That, like you said, that performance mixed with that use of CGI is just one of the, I would say, groundbreaking moments of the advancement, like uh, you're saying, of technology and cinema that that I got to witness, too. I think that's really well said, because if you think about it, that is a a really nice merger of of that, where they couldn't have conceived of that without the technology being available to them. Absolutely. Yeah. And. Just uh, uh, pretty much everything with Barbosa, from the the performance to all the stuff with his pet monkey and the apple that he's always carrying around that he just happens to drop at the very end when he gets shot by Jack Sparrow. Um, I just love Captain Barbosa and and really Jeffrey Rush too. He's just a great actor. Um, and uh, Captain Barbosa, an easy pick for number six on my list. Let's move on to Brian yeah, and, and, cool. and see what he has on his list. So. It was interesting. I was if you just kind of grinding away trying to figure out like you know, what is when we're talking about a villain, like what do we mean about evil and all of that? So uh, I have a, a third grader. Uh, he's going in the fourth grade right now. Aww. And uh, yeah, it's great. And so I was having this discussion with him. And of so course, what's I, evil? Yeah, you know, like, <laughs> we're talking about villains and all of this. And so um, and I remember I sent. Uh, I was I was going for a walk one day. I was trying to you know, think some things through, and I uh, I sent uh, Alex you know a note. I was like, well, wait a second. Let's think about this. And I'm not saying this is my guy. I'm just saying, like, in terms of, like, tracing out, like, the, the boundaries of what we consider evil to be applied to a villain. Right. Has there ever been a character who has unleashed amount of carnal violence more than General or Admiral Hux? General from, Hux. General from Hux. From Force from, Awakens. Right. So was it five or seven planets that were dispatched, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, One of them would know. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it feels like around an average of four. Right. Yeah. It's I, it's more than Alderaan. It's, it's, it's a lot more than Alderaan. That's, that's for right. sure. Basically, it's more than Alderaan. Now we're just making words so, up. So by that metric, we would say it's got to be Hux. But that was not a, a that's not a performance of a villain that stays right. with you, right? So he's not on the list, but like you were thinking. So I was trying. To, okay, well then, what's behind that? So he's more of a representative of a of an organization than exactly. he is like a person that actually right. steers the intent of him. It, Absolutely, yeah. he was the good soldier. Like I'm just following orders type right. of thing. So I think that's why. But he, but he, he likes doing it. Yeah, I couldn't. I can't quite explain. You know that type of uh, Stanley Milgram obedience to authority uh, <laughs> experiments yeah. of my fourth grade son. But like it, it's about that. So we're thinking about like the advancement of evil. 
and, and what's actually accomplished. But then there's just my own response, like, who stays with me? You know, like, there's got to be that. So kind of like what you were saying. And, and this is in my top six. This is in no particular order. But I was just kind of going through my mind. Do you remember the movie Kids? Yeah. Oh, oh, my God. Harmony Corrins? So uh, it was, I'm drawing a blank on the director. Harmony Corrins like, right. wrote yeah. it. The yeah. one with Chloe Seveny, right? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, Rosario Dars, yeah, yeah, Dawson. Yeah. So Casper uh, from oh that, right? God. So I'm thinking to myself, like, here's, doesn't kill anyone exactly, right? Although, was he the one, I'm trying to remember, because I was trying to watch it yesterday, but our power went out. So um, nope. I was trying to remember if it was Casper or Tully. Would, but either way, I, I, was wa- I was rewatching it yesterday just to kind of, like, validate, like, why was this movie still in my mind? And there was a scene when they were at the park. And yes. just everything about it is, like, the most awful person that you can imagine. He's just saying the most misogynistic sexist stuff he's homophobic and then he then he just takes his skateboard and just gets in this type of man i don't think he was even homeless i think it was just a guy that they were just doing the kind of your normal teenage bravado like what's up bro like you you just you bumped into me and then escalates and he takes his skateboard and bashes him in like so i was so i was really trying to unpack why does this guy bother me so much is because he is ostensibly a human being but it's a husk there's no he's ignorant and there's no way in which this person is going to ever find a light like it's just it's a, a darkness that will always be there and that just it really bothered me there's the always thing. and that's he's a villain to me there's so. always the question of like whether it's nature or nurture in in, yes. in the case of the the cultivation of a villain i think it might be both simply because because the fact the entire um, conceit of that film is like these kids have no supervision whatsoever. Yes. It's at the height of the AIDS epidemic. It's in New York. They're basically being bombarded with all these different influences. It's not just like a one good soul that was led astray. I think like had he had it come from a stricter background, he might have he, – he might he, – he'd still be a pretty shit person, but he probably would not have gone to the same yeah. – he probably would have been able to focus his energies in a more like constructive manner. Like as soon as you said kids, I knew exactly who you were talking <laughs> yeah. about. And like that actually strikes a chord with me because I watched that film for the first and only time when I was in high school and I yeah. swore to never watch that film yeah. again. No, I, I haven't it, watched it, it either since it, yesterday. It deeply affected yeah. me. Like I, I saw as a sophomore in college, I'm like, mm, I remember every mm, single mm, thing that you were talking yeah. about. So yeah, no, that was it. And just to kind of go back to this idea, like there's a, uh, I was listening to this crazy story about this guy. He was a doctor and he was, uh, he was a, he studied as a neurologist and he was studying all of these things and he kind of got some things messed up and he's going through these brain scans and he noticed that he did a brain scan of himself. So what happened was he realized the region of his brain was also the same region that is kind of compromised for psychopaths. Can you imagine finding out that, oh my God. I'm I think I read that before, yeah. Right, so it's a crazy story. So then, so in part of articulating like what happened, he said, I was raised with a really loving mother. She, you know, she gardened and all this stuff. And so the way he kind of metaphorically say it to your point, Toussaint, which is that, you know, a psychopath is like almost like it's like all of the bullets are in the barrel, but it's society and nurturing that pulls the trigger <laughs> uh, to, to allow him to. And he's like, but I didn't have anyone to make me be that way. So it's just kind of interesting. Na- nature in this analogy, at least the way that I look at it is like, you know, with bullets in the chamber yep. and like whether it's aimed or not, it's like I kind of see it like a bonsai tree, like the bonsai tree will grow on its own, but it has to be cultivated in a certain, mm-hmm. certain fashion in order for it to at least be aesthetically beautiful by, by human standards. And it's just like, whether or not you let it grow on its own or whether it like is, is 
steered and, 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 yeah. and hardened to go in a certain direction. Like, it, it's kind of both. Yeah. 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 I have to admit, be- besides the one I just named uh, of Catherine Martell from Cruel Intentions, although in that movie, she's technically, the, that whole movie, it's young adults plain adult. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? But I, I realize n- nobody else on my list, spoiler, is anybody of the same kind of age group where then I started wondering as far as my own beliefs, like, can I reasonably see somebody uh, under a certain age as a villain? Or do I think that there's still just untapped potential to mm-hmm. course correct? And, you know, it's just, I, I haven't actually seen kids, but I, I've liked what I've seen of Harmony. Correct. Larry Clark. I don't know what that was. He was the director. Yes. Yeah. Yes, right. Um, and I, it's just one of those things where I never even thought about that I and mean, i just wonder if that's my own prejudice beliefs on nature versus nurture mm. uh but i think we see it in many different ways i mean we see a movie like the bad seed and mm-hmm. i think that movie is pretty clear that like <laughs> it kind of it's in the name <laughs> <laughs> some children are just yeah. assholes and a movie i talked about on our top six of uh 2015 was this documentary yeah. about a free school and there was this 11 year old and i made a joke that he might be the best villain of last year because he was just petulant little shit what, that, was, what was the movie it was called approaching the elephant and it was about a, a it documented uh, a complete year in a school year of a free school, you know. This like, isn't Summerhill, is it? Oh God, that that sounds familiar. I can't remember the name of the school. Oh, man. Okay, well, but we'll it was, it's that, one of yeah. those, and it and there was this one child who made it hell for everybody involved, and it even ended with them ostracizing him from the school. Like when, when you have to do that to a child, and you, and but then I wonder, I'm like, well. Is he just that way? Like because that's who he is, or and I, you know, I just you're touching on something I just never really once considered for my own list. Yeah, I would for the listeners, I would recommend it's a book called. But um, he's, he's a great. He actually uh, was the the, the journalist from this. Um, uh, the movie called The Men at Steric Goats. John Ronson. He wrote a book called The Psychopath Test. And it's really read it in an afternoon it's really easy but he really kind of like lines out you know, how to think about the nature of violence as associated to what may be within the mind of a psychopath and really mm. kind of maps it out I, I, and it's really kind of shaped my understanding of, of how we should approach people who may be psychopathic and how they might enter into positions of authority to maximize suffering for people so right. yeah, it's amazing just to answer your question, the the documentary I watched, Approaching the Elephant, was about documenting the Teddy McArdle Free School. So okay. different, but it's the same concept. Okay, see. Yeah, oh, it's really good. I cool. recommend it. Cool. So it's my turn, right? Yeah. Nope. Okay. So I kind of started where Brian was, where I was kind of asking the question myself, like, you know, what does define evil? And I knew that on this list, I was going to have a Disney villain because, like, ever since I was very young, I've been sort of fascinated with my villains not because i emulate them or anything but just because i thought that they were you relate more... to them <laughs> no it's just like it's, it's it's because i felt that there were so many unspoken aspects like i got to know aladdin so much but i wanted to know why is jafar such a bad person like why is maleficent so racist overtones uh, uh i mean I, I i didn't i didn't really clue into that as, as a kid i felt it was like you know what turned him like why does like what? What is in him? Well, we that, all know that Scar is a Nazi, so that's you know that. Yeah, they're prepared. <laughs> there's that, but <laughs> I th- th- that's one of those things that just kind of fascinated me that I've seen uh, at least in in recent years uh, with uh, films and, and books like Wicked or with Maleficent, which is an adaptation of that, or even going back as far to like to the 1971 novel, I think Grendel, where it was like yeah, take, yeah where it repurposed the the infamous monster from the Beowulf myth. Like, there's always been sort of like this. Uh, this contrarian telling of like what 
comes from the, the the bad guy side. And sometimes I think it's really interesting and evocative, and sometimes I think it's really fucking stupid and horseshit. Like the whole theory that Agent Smith is the one. And I don't, don't get me fucking started on that. Don't do not fucking get me started on that. I'm gonna get you started. We're gonna we'll talk about that some other time anyway. Um, but going back to Disney villains, like looking back on the Disney, I, I was asking. I know there's going to be a Disney villain on this list. Who's it going to be? And I was surprised by the person that came to mind first, and it was Tony Jay as Judge Claude Frollo from The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Hmm. I that that villain reaches out to me and, 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 and resonates with me the most because I think it reflects it, it reflects my own understanding of, of amorality and of evil and of absolute power corrupting absolutely because as you get I, I hate to sound like a fucking sticker from a from a MySpace page, but once you get older <laughs> you realize that true villains are not people that transform into fucking like genies or or, uh, or or dragons or some shit. They don't live in fucking like evil dark castles and, and dress all weird. Like they're people that assume levels of authority and then exert that authority over people. And mostly, and it also clues into me because it's just like it's an abuse of religious power and like using this this institution for which to basically uh, ex- exert your own prejudices and your own biases and your own misanthropy onto others. Like he is an he's he's an unapologetic asshole, and the only thing that he fears is something that is perhaps more scary than even him, and that is the the wrath of a vengeful god. Like, I was listening to the song, the first song from Hunchback of Notre Dame, On the Way Here, and there's a line from the from one of the jesters, he's just like, Judge Claw Frodo um, sought to purge the world of vice and sin, and he saw corruption everywhere except within. And it's like, he, mm. and then he, <laughs> he goes into this, he basically chases after uh, Quasimodo's mother. He kills her on the on the steps of Notre Dame. Is about to drop Quasimodo into the into the well, and the archdeacon uh, stops him. And I get chills every single time that he says this because, like, he interrogates him, and Judge Clofrodo is just like, "My my conscience is clear. She ran, and I pursued." And I'm just like, "Oh, that ooh, that touches a little too close to home nowadays." Um, and then the archdeacon goes like, "You can lie to yourself and your minions. You can act as though you haven't a qualm." But you can never run nor hide what you've done from the eyes of Notre Dame. And I was like, fuck. Fuck, that's such a good line. Um, yeah, and the fact that he that, that he's such a, a, a terribly – he's so terribly afraid of his own nature and that he lusts after uh, Esmeralda. And that's really what steers – his his whole uh his his whole campaign to basically purge all gypsies from Paris like Jesus Christ man you're a fucking monster <laughs> um but yeah that's that's number 6 for me uh Judge Claude Frollo from uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame awesome man good stuff all right made it around the table once back to Nick can i really quickly add one thing sure. which is that my honorable mention was going to be a disney villain uh-huh. and that was it wasn't going to be what you named but mm. my disney villain pick would have been uh, james wood and hercules uh, oh, as yeah. hades oh because hades yeah just as sheer like showmanship like the voice acting in that role it's just somebody i remember from a movie that i he's got a cool castle too yeah, I also love the, like a skull. I love the story that uh, John Lithgow recorded all the audio to be Hades, and they ended up getting James Woods to come in at like last minute and record it all again, and that ends up being without a doubt the most iconic part of that film. Yeah, so that that was just my little two cents before I forget yeah. about that. But okay, I, let me just add one more thing. If yeah. I were if we're on Disney villains, yeah. uh, it it almost made the list, but the 
Now, it's been a long time since I saw it, and it just it would have been an honorable mention for me as well, but the idea of what motivates Cruella de Vil. Um, I mean, this is someone who takes a sentient being for no other reason. Like, I, I just, there's something about it. Like, I was really thinking about it for this list. I mean, I wasn't trying to, like, you know, insert this, but, like, the idea of the capacity of her evil to just skin Dalmatians for I will her say, own pleasure is I didn't there's watch... something really for a kid. You can't get my mind around I, it. Like, I want to say, no reason for this. I want to say, like, something more in depth and more articulate, but my first. My, my 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 first reaction to that is is sort of a gendered insult, so I won't say it. But she's just a terrible human being. She's yeah. just awful. Okay, but no, I, you're you're onto something because of the fact that it's like as an adult, I don't really look back on her. But yeah. that those that movies, me. yes, yeah. as a child, I never wanted to rewatch Mm-mm. the 101 Dalmatians because she was the epitome of like that unexplainable evil and that kind it's of like the evil kind of, aunt. But a conspicuous yeah. consumption of yeah. suffering, right? Like, yeah. I mean, she, the, the, you know, the, those, those uh, pelts came from something that was we were supposed to identify with. True. And that, there's no doubt where they came from. It's really fucking good. I yeah. hate <laughs> this anti-corporate message that Hollywood's trying to push in us today. It's like, that film came out in, like, in 19... Uh, some, someone, like, maybe in the 80s? Maybe 90s? Oh, no. I think before that. Yeah, way before that. It's like, yeah. Yeah. I think you're thinking of the... Glenn Close. Yeah. Oh, yes, that one. Yeah. oh yeah, that probably one, yes. that. There yeah. was a cartoon before. <laughs> All right, Nick, number five. Let's hear it, man. Uh, my number five is also something that I'm really probably not going to talk that much about at all, okay. but it's one of my, it's the last of my just kind of fun villains, uh, and that is Audrey Two from the film adaptation of Little Shop of Horrors. Hmm. The rendering of the puppeteering that goes into this talking killer plant mixed with the voice work by Levi Stubbs, who I believe is the front man for the Four Tops. Um, uh, he plays the four man for no, you saw it. That's not how we talk about band leaders and singers and bands. From real life. Yeah. Um, but between his voice work and that puppeteering, I mean, it, that, the movie came out in the 80s, and I still don't feel like I've seen many, shall we say, special effects that rival what they did with this very simple, as far as it's just a plan, and yet must have been extremely complex because the the more it grows, the more it becomes this truly living organism that is bigger than like half of a room, and yet that they're able to animate like every single aspect of it. I'm kind of amazed every time I watch it. But just the the voice work of Levi Stubbs in that role is just, in my opinion, uh, hilarious and just great because they obviously hire someone who can sing too, and the way that um, that Levi Stubbs is able to kind of, I, I would say like portray this gleeful i want to say amorality because even though he's evil he doesn't really seem like he gets like like he knows what he's doing it's wrong he's just like if if there's an easy way and a wrong and a and a hard way why would you ever take the hard way you know like why if i could grant you this wish or whatever like it's not that like that you're a good person if you do that then you're just a stupid person Mm -hmm. you know and i and i just love the way he cracks up every time like uh rick moranis's character tries to like fight back against his like you know bad natured temperament um so i'm guessing neither one of you have seen little shop of horror not yet no okay but you absolutely should a because it's a great movie but 
B, what what they're able to do between the the team of puppeteers and you know it's directed by Frank Oz and oh okay yeah, cool yeah it is really I think you can tell too when you watch it uh, but I feel like that's another one of those examples where that movie even though there's standout scenes in the movie without the plant that movie doesn't work with without the plant uh, if we're not constantly cutting back to this kind of cutting edge animatronic living being then it's it it, it it just kind of all falls apart. And th- another great thing is that there's this uh, the- theatrical cut, uh, which is the cut that we all see when whenever you rent it or if you get it on VOD or anything like that. But the original ending is, uh, which is now available on Blu-ray and uh, DVD, is even more in the vein of like upping the awfulness of the the, the Audrey Two plant, and it literally ends with the plant. I'm not kidding, spawning off other baby plants and like taking over the world in this hilarious, almost like it almost looks like wartime propaganda, like a kaiju film almost. Like he just, Ooh. yeah, he he just <laughs> you, you said know, the magic word, yeah, he just you know wrecks major carnage all across and and i feel like it wouldn't have worked had they not had that voice actor and that uh, group of puppeteers and the mix between the two is just fascinating to watch i think it's hilarious to watch and even more so than Catherine martell from my previous pick there, there's nothing to it that's not complex at all but that is my pick for like my, my most fun villain who just lives to shout off hilarious one-liners and, <laughs> and to make people's lives utter hell. So Audrey 2 from Little Shop of Horrors is kind of my pick. And, and because it's also rare in a musical to really have a villain, and that's why I like that movie, is that it's kind of this half-horror movie, half-musical, where like people are trying to, like in the musical side of things, trying to achieve their dreams, but there's this fucking talking plan that just will not <laughs> let them live their lives. So <laughs> Levi Stubbs, as the voice actor as Audrey 2 is 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 fantastic uh, in Little Shop of Horrors. Nice. Good selection. Definitely not one I would have thought of. <laughs> That's <laughs> which, is, which is why we do these lists, because it's, right. it's fun to hear some of these names. Uh, so before I get to this one, I will say that even though this is only number five, this is the one that I was I was happiest to put on my list. Um, this is this sort of defined how I made my list is is because of what makes this character a villain to me. Um, and that is, I think, something maybe a little bit different than you guys use as your criteria, which we left this wide open for interpretation. Um, when I was thinking of villains as character, I, I thought of the word charming a lot, which is something that maybe you wouldn't immediately think right off the bat for villains. But when I thought of villains who are able to lure people into their traps uh, and also at the same time, this is very important for my list. Lure the audience into their trap as well. Satan. Great. Yeah, it, it, it's, <laughs> um, it, it is something where you, you find someone either charming or you can even get behind what their um, plan is. And that's why I ended up picking for number five on my list, uh, Clive Owen as Dalton Russell in the movie Inside Man. Mm. Okay. Yep. Yep. Hmm. So um, even though he isn't necessarily the actual end up villain of this film, which ends up being Christopher Plummer's character, um, Dalton Russell is very much um, sort of that Robin Hood character here as he shows up, robs a bank, but he... He has he has a very way of portraying it, but he also doesn't ever really seem like he 
finds himself as innocent at the same time or guilty at the same time as well. So it's it's a weird sort of way that the character moves on through through the film because we start off knowing that he is leading this group of people that are holding people hostage and are going to rob this bank. And it, it, of course you end up at the end of the film by him pretty much saying, well, I, I did this to, to expose this person and expose the, the the greater truth about what he did in his previous life. But let's be clear about it. I, I did it for the money. That's why I, I, I did all this and went through this whole honestly brilliant plan as, as you watch this film uh, go from start to finish. And um, I just love every moment that Clive Owen is on screen and pretty much every line he says in the film is is quite entertaining. At the same time, I, I'm just captivated by what he has to say because – He's pretty much, you know, playing the book of hostage situation, asking for a plane, asking for food, asking for for more time, claiming he's going to kill somebody. And and he he knows the playbook. But at the same time, he's not there to really have this this grand plan. He just wants to to make it appear that he has this grand plan to expose this guy who's involved with Nazis that nobody knows about. But really, he just wants to collect his diamonds. So it's. It's this it's this really weird scenario where you have a guy uh, who's very much secure with what he is as a person, but is also seems to be somewhat conflicted, especially uh, at the end of the film when he ends up leaving uh, the huge diamond ring for the police to find. It's a it's a very weird character and, and a, a very diverse villain, uh, which is which is something that is is hard to find in, in a lot of villains these days, where they are very much exactly what they are supposed to be and they're not they're not there's not much to them they're just what they are where this one is is there's a lot to him i feel like and 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 he's great i i I guess i i completely agree and i want to say that i think there's a reason why he's he's the first character the audience sees and he's the one who brings the audience into this story because doesn't it open with him yes saying that kind of I would say very vague in the beginning because you don't know exactly what he's referring to until you've seen the whole movie, but like the who, the what, the why, you know, that kind of thing. And I think that says a lot, not that Denzel Washington's character is not good or anything like that, but that he is kind of as a villain, but he is that kind of beating heart of the story. And he's the reason why all these things are happening and the reason why to watch. And uh, yeah, I think Hollywood has a weird tendency to put Clive Owen in like shoot him up movies and that kind of <laughs> stuff, which not that he can't do, but he's so much better than that. And this movie is like inside man. Isn't he in a film called shoot him up? Yeah, yeah. Literally, yeah. <laughs> that was pretty Freudian there. I like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but he, I think he's so much better than that. And especially in movies like these where he, does have that kind of broguish, uh, I don't know, uh, charm to him. It's, it's really hard for me, too, because I've never really been a huge fan of Spike Lee films. Yeah. And this is definitely, for me, somewhat of an outlier from his more recent work. It's definitely the best thing he's done in quite since, some time. Since he's done it. When, yeah. it, when like, it come out? Like 2005? Something like that. About Ten years ago. Yeah, Ooh, but it's, I, it's it's the last time I remember liking a Spike Lee movie. Yeah. Chirac was not good. <laughs> I, I mean, not... and, I, and this is a cause that I'm, I mean, I, I'm very, I, I want to know, like, and it just, that plot for what I thought, and I wasn't, I was trying to, like, get my mind around the, uh, the, you know, the, the context of all of that. It just, Technically, it could have worked, but there's just the actual storytelling. The editing was garbage. It was not good. Well, if you I mean, want to talk about, watching. yeah, and yeah. if you want to talk about like just a director kind of falling off of a cliff as far as 
like how prominent. I mean, he may yeah. do the right thing, which was a movie that basically shook the Hollywood at the time it came out and, and said, like, this is what some people can do with this medium. But it's insane that Chirac is the first notable, maybe not good, but notable uh, Spike Lee movie since Inside Man. Yeah. Like, that's a large gap for somebody he, who makes a lot of movies. He did, the, he did the one where it was just, like, the the black fighter pilots or, like, the the black treasure hunters Ooh, during... Uh, uh, to, no, uh, Miracle at St. Anna? Yeah, that's what yeah, I'm talking about, yeah. I only know that because I'm walking IMDb, but no one really remembers. <laughs> well, he did the, uh, what, from all accounts, horrible remake of Old Boy, oh, God. Um, which oh, I have seen. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, what, whatever he's been doing. I mean, it's been a long, yeah. long time since Inside Man in the 25th hour. Yeah, but, so. <laughs> but Inside Man, such a good movie. It is. God damn, they I both love are. That movie. Yeah, They're yes. both very good films. Damn, I love that film. Yeah. <laughs> But Inside Man, Clive Owen, uh, is fantastic. He is, and it's it, he's a very unique villain in terms of what you, you would usually think of a villain being. But he definitely is that, and I, I would, I would, uh, I would argue with someone who said that he is a, he's a hero because he's a hero. Well, that's that's an opinion. He's a hero. He he is. I need a hero. He is still there to rob the the bank and and he take is. money, and that's his primary function. So. He's an individual. He is, in fact, an individual. He's very a good socialist. <laughs> so, Clive Owen is Dalton Russell, and the film Inside Man is my number five. Moving on to Brian. Um, yeah, so, like, Alex, you were right on about talking about charisma. So that's why I'm going to, like, just kind of basically take one. I know Thanos is going to be on your list, so just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a personality. Like, he's going to cut me right there. No. Um, so it, it, this episode's so, over. With, basically. The mic. Bye, Brian. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I knew, I knew that wind him up. Um, no, Thanos is not on anyone's list. Uh, so, but he never will be. What, what I love about Nick this guy, list. <laughs> he's rich. The um, going through this conversation, like you said something like, "Okay, edit." You know, like now you made me think of something, and then you, just what you were saying about charisma is so important. Um, I'm gonna have to, and I was like, "Oh, I think he's gonna talk about my guy." The way you set it up yeah. was so great. Um, I'm gonna go with. Um, the uh, Christopher Waltz uh, of uh, Hans Landa, oh, the yeah. ever lovable Nazi Jew hunter from Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so because I mean, you're right. Like, how do I get sucked in and in loving the art and the craft and the joie de vie that this guy has of doing the most horrific thing possible? Because he how loves he his job, and he and he's, <laughs> he's he's the one guy who seems to take the most joy out of what he does, and what he does is the most inhumane and horrific thing possible. So, isn't that the mark of like how uh, in terms of great villain he has completely subverted our morality in that moment there is no reason why we should be kind of in our back of our mind saying oh that's kind of clever that was really great what he's doing there no we should be absolutely horrified what he's doing yet somehow the charm that scene when was he eating like the cherry pie I'm trying to remember mm-hmm. like remember and just like yeah. that obnoxious like you wait know, for the cream yeah, exactly like how and then he, he puts out that? a cigarette in it after he leaves uh, <laughs> right you know I mean that is just that that was to me um, is, so we we're talking about like the scope of, of villain charisma so important and um and the the idea that somehow that they have you know you i think you brought up satan right like mm-hmm. the idea that somehow like somehow we have been completely flipped in our morality that's an effective villain that somehow that they were able to uh upend our mind and so that's why he's on my list often, i gotta say oh do you want to yeah it's like often the 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 most 
at least it's come to light in this um, in in recent years, like maybe for maybe the past decade, or or maybe it's always been like this way. Is like the most memorable and the most um, the most effective villains have often been the most charismatic because they are the ones that make us question the the otherwise like resolute and like hardline like morals that we've we've kind of been ingrained with or that we've always kind of like clung to is like, you know, it's like altruism is supposed to be a good is like selfishness is supposed to be bad. And then Ayn Rand comes along and then the second half of the 21st century is all fucked up. I'm sorry. I just, I just read a history book about that. Um, but anyway, it's just, it's, it's, um, it, it kind of like leads into the whole, um, Joker phenomenon. So I, I don't know if that's on anybody's list. Um, but that, that was an obligation. My son, which probably won't listen to this episode. Maybe it'll just that part. But yes, Joker's definitely on the yeah, list. Yeah, the, the 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 Joker uh, phenomenon, which I I think it just personally for me, uh, I I can understand what the allure of that character is. Is like I just think that it's uh, and not uh, not to spread off into oh, a no, tangent no, no, from, no. from Hans Lanzer. It's like I just we'll we'll, we'll talk about that more. It's like. About about my feelings towards that. So, yeah. Yeah. And about Han Landa, uh, what you're bringing up as far as about like charm and such, you know, in 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 a context that is as horrific as something like the Holocaust and mm-hmm. like you know like what he's specifically doing, I think it is honestly the way uh, Christoph Waltz plays him is almost disturbingly more humanizing than a more trite route of like making him a sympathetic character or something right. like that like if, if i'm watching him because it is very easy to like if we're well, not easy but it, it's easy as far as to like for audience manipulation to make a character who has who does the same heinous things but show that maybe like he had a child that got killed in some other war or just something whatever stupid bullshit uh but if you have someone who's like christoph Waltz, not given a backstory or anything like that, but playing him to such perfection where you want to keep watching him and you want his existence to be a perpetual thing, that's even scarier, I think. But and here's the thing. You don't get a sense that Hans Landa is in any way motivated by ideology. Right. He's doing this because there is a art, there is a... Uh, pang of excitement in the art of the hunt, and that's it. And so yep. he could very easily be working for Scotland Yard. He was or a MI monster I mean, like, that was born in in the best of times for him to be able right. to like vent his 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 primal fascinations yeah. with being able to hunt people. Like he he was born in in the best position in the best time to be able to like facilitate like what he he's almost he's like most the flip side of. Uh, really quick, he's almost like the flip side of the the group that Brad Pitt puts together. Whereas they hmm. put together their own, <laughs> shall we say, team because they they want to do it, and they're like, we have to like we're it's a reaction to what they're doing. He it's it, it's almost like he's destined to do it, and mm-hmm. that that's a scary thing. Uh, I was going to say early in the film is is a absolutely fabulous scene. That opening scene is just oh, absolutely fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And that ends in the, the music with the the scene with with the guns is is just so perfect for a Tarantino film and for a, a war film at the, at the same time it just it just goes together perfectly. But just the tone of his voice when he's speaking in in French, even though he's masquerading as he would say, 
the, to- the, the tone Remember, of his voice yeah. is he's making it seem like he's leaving and saying, I bid you adieu as they fire machine guns into the floorboard is so horrifying for me for yeah. some reason. Because you have this guy who is, is honestly just spending his life putting on a show in order to and, – and I, I guess we see the one moment where we, we get a glimpse into him sort of breaking character when he strangles Diane Kruger's character to death. It's like – night and day like he goes from totally together as he is through the entire movie to jumping across the table pulling her down and like the veins popping out of his neck and his head as he strangles her to death and he found the one person to actually kind of you know compete with him i know but it it is it is a night and day from the rest of the film for him and it is he is is quite an interesting character you guys i i heard uh, a little bit i think that someone made reference to hitchcock in the first part of your x-men episode last week and uh, (laughs) it was someone mentioned the movie rope which i love that's one of those that was me yeah Yeah. that's i was thinking the cameo every year i use that with my students at the end of the year like let's i want to do film study with this movie and part of that is because i show them what a mind screw it is which is notice what's happening why are you nervous there's a great scene if you know if you remember from the movie uh, where mm-hmm. the camera is placed behind the garsoni and uh, Mrs. Wilson is slowly taking off the candles yep. and all that stuff why are we nervous in a normal situation we should be very excited that these murders are about to be found out and justice will be done for David Kentley but we're not we're nervous for them how did that happen because we've been charmed by them yep. and that's what I think is again a mark of a good villain that somehow that they have completely screwed with our moral sensibilities and I think that's a that's just that's it I gotta say before we move right to Toussaint um, I looked through all Hitchcock movie because I figured there would have been a villain in there and there certainly are great examples but not a single one landed on my list unfortunately even though he writes some of the best you know, like you say mind screw villains mm-hmm. where like you shouldn't like them and yet you want to watch more and more movies yeah. with them even anyway. even the most obvious choice like Psycho right is a, that was is the big fabulous... one that almost made my list yeah. but I'm like it was just a little too I don't know like I like that movie for a lot of reasons like it's not just him and I think it's it's really easy at, at, at this point to to look back and say, oh, that's an, an obvious choice. But when they when they made Psycho, right? And it, we talked about it, actually, I think when we talked about North by Northwest, and then the the move from that film to a movie like Psycho, um, the, how out of the box it was to cast Anthony Perkins uh, in that role, and it, and it would it would almost be like today, like casting a like musical character, a, a comedy actor in a in a completely like terrible, cruel role, and having it completely work. And it's yeah. it's uh, it's amazing that something like that happened. But that was the genius of Hitchcock, man. He, he sure. just he just had it together somehow. He, you know, he knew his shit. Uh, he did. <laughs> <laughs> no one's debating that. You know, there's one thing that we can all say about Alfred Hitchcock. He's like, he he really knew his shit. And he was a very, very peculiar person. Oh, yes. yeah. <laughs> he was a real villain. <laughs> Moving on to Jason, his number five. Okay, so mine is not going to be as heady or intellectually provocative, but okay, it is one that... Uh, <laughs> that you knew was going to be on this list as soon as we, we started. I was like, um, my co-hosts, uh, Brian, know very much of my affinity like of, of science fiction. And I knew that I was going to have a, a science fiction villain <laughs> on this list. And I really competed on it for a while. It was like between like two or three really iconic science fiction villains. I feel villains. like I know who it is. And uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be the Predator from <laughs> Predator. Ah, yep. 
That is one of hey. my, my. I was between that or the um, what's the name from Blade Runner? Uh, Roy uh, Batty. Yeah, I thought maybe you were going to choose. Um, that. I mean, I. It's, as, as 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 sad as it sounds, like I mean, Roy Batty did a lot of like evil shit in the film. Like I yeah. really honestly, I just figured like, on the basis of the I, tears on a whatever. That's a beautiful, um, the best. That's one yeah. of the most beautiful speeches, and I think that a lot of it was like in, extemporaneous. That like last he, line they say, uh, uh, like, oh, God. it's like all those moments will be lost, like tears in the rain. I was like, that's one of the most iconic lines of, of all cinema and yet it might have been just like it's totally not, ripped off. But I'm glad you chose the Predator. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, but I, I, I personally like really enjoy the Predator films or at least like the first Predator film. The we one know. With the, the one with the I Scooby-Doo know, voice, right? I know, the one with the <laughs> Scooby-Doo Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I really enjoy that character design. I really enjoy the fact that it's like let, let, I'll, I'll explain why I chose chose the Predator. Besides the fact that I like the movie, I also like Ridley Scott's original Alien film, and I actually thought about have, including that was the, almost on my list. Yeah, including the, another, the Xenomorph. Yeah, yeah. Like, but yeah. the reason why I chose like Predator over Alien over the Xenomorph is because I see and and completely like uh, eschewing their extended universe like causality and like whether they exist in the same universe or not, or like where they come from. I was like just looking at them on their face from those individual films. And I was like, I see. I honestly see uh, the Xenomorph more as a a a primal menace, if not primal to our terrestrial understanding, but pri- primal in a otherworldly a a a, a and not otherworldly as in a, a supernatural sense, but in an actual other world sense, like another planet sense. Like it's primal from a different um from 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 a different planet. So it's already something that we don't understand. But then there's like another level to it where it's even more like what does the what does the ineffable find ineffable? What does mm-hmm. the ineffable find like 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 what are they fucking afraid of? Like they're mm-hmm. afraid of the xenomorph. Like that's a that's the the the, the extraterrestrial chubacabra for them. Like that's right. their that's their monster. But I'm I'm more interested in a in a conscious evil, in a in a in evil that Perhaps does not think that it's evil, but rather is is adhering to a like to, cause of nature, to a cause of nature, to a modus operandi, to like an ideolo- ideology, something like that. Something like why do you do what you do? Like I think that's more interesting to me. Do you, do you remember the uh, the short story that you probably read in high school, the mm. most dangerous game with General oh, yeah. Zaroff? Right. Yeah. I mean that is the archetype of yeah. what is going on here, right? Yeah. Like I hunt because it's what I do. It's because of, I, I mean it's yeah, because I mean, of of like and and this is just taking it from the original films like they do this because it is a rite of passage because it is a sport mm. because it is like it is like what humans do when we when they go out on a safari their their version of safari of going to a gated like yeah. like like sequestered area in order to hunt certain rare think, game think about how many gorillas we've shot down in the last couple of weeks oh why did you do that why did you do that? This anyway, is the villain but I will say that scene when you see the trophy case is probably one yeah. of the coolest scenes yeah. ever. I mean, like he's like, oh, I think oh he's been around for a while. I think that's from number two. It's like, yeah, that's from, that's from number two. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah, definitely. yeah. Yeah, well, because yeah. you see the, the the xenomorph skull and then that's yeah. the the whole seed of like how whether or not they actually it started off as Easter egg and then it turned into like this whole thing. It's like, oh, people really like this shit. Yeah, I forgot that. Uh, yeah. um, but. I really enjoy the pet predator not only for his technology. I thought he was going to say the pedophile. Yeah. <laughs> you said pet, and I'm like, whoa. No, I don't. No. I got to watch these movies. There are no pedophiles on my list, okay? 
No. <laughs> and Nick is checking Double his check. list again. And he's pausing real hard right now. One of now. these might be uh, ambiguous. Yeah. Jesus <laughs> fuck. Okay. He blew up seven planets, but definitely didn't diddle kid. I mean, oh, that's my God. Right. Um, I'm not sure about General Hux. I yeah, gotta yeah, tell you. He's like, uh, <laughs> number two. Uh, oh, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> I'm not going to say that. Wow. I, I was, I was going to say number two, Bill Cosby from Ghost Dad. It's like, oh. <laughs> Jesus. Wow. Sorry. I'm sorry about sorry. that. Um, but I really enjoy uh, the Predator. <laughs> I really enjoy the Predator. Should, should I go now? I think <laughs> yeah, so. You can go. My number four is a villain that we've already talked about at length, so I'm not going to really talk about him that much other than a few words of wisdom. So it's Jigsaw from the Saw franchise. Okay. Oh, boy. I, you oh, know, Billy. I happen to think that those movies are a mix of awful, okay, and like surprisingly entertaining, and I feel like it all comes down to Jigsaw and Tobin Bell's performance. Pretty like, much, yeah. yeah. I was gonna say like <laughs> I'm not into the torture porn aspect. It doesn't bother me, but that's not why I watched them. But it is because of the casting of Tobin Bell. And you have to think that this is a villain who didn't really appear in the first movie. You know what I mean? And I mean, he's also a character who dies in the third film, but is exactly. shoehorned into the remaining four films. Yeah. And yet you you only watch four through seven for him. you know so <laughs> pretty much that says a lot i think about his uh his presence i wouldn't say charisma exactly but his presence and the way he uh performs it and if i even have to cite a, a specific one which i will is it's saw three i mean mm-hmm. he he spends that entire movie on a surgical bed and not just down to a strip level is he Machiavellian and like manipulating everything, but just the way he does interact with his protege Amanda, like that's a one act play I, I never get tired of, and I, I love the way he kind of he does that. And I feel like there's really nothing else to say about it, just because we already have talked about we had it. a full but saw episode. I, I had but... to mention it because <laughs> no, I, I absolutely. absolutely love it. I think so. we're attracted to characters who have four chess moves have worked ahead of us. I think that there is something about that. Yeah, And there is something about, I would say, Tobin Bell in the way he conveys it because yeah. there's a lot of, I would say, villains that have that same kind of, uh, like we just saw a really shitty movie uh, last night, Now You See Me too. Yeah. Um, and I feel like those kind of movies, which I'm not a fan of either one, but I can understand why anybody would like either one. Actually, I don't hmm. hate either. Hmm. But those are movies that are based on the idea that people are one step ahead of everybody else. And I never once believed that because it's just never built up or they don't ever get an actor who can really, I think, convey that. I think the horror genre is such a great genre if you can do it right, too, as well, because it's it's a genre that usually is not very deep in any way, shape, or form, at yeah. least in terms of grand story structure. And, and pardon this body horror pun, but like, <laughs> when have we ever had such a, I would say, engaging horror villain who's so flaccid? He, you know, he doesn't mm-hmm. walk around with a chainsaw. He doesn't even like, like scare people. Like you know, like jump scares. He or lays whatever. dead in the middle of a room for an entire film. I he needs say, a tricycle but, in order to get around. Exactly. Well, that's, that's Billy that's the Puppet, but Billy. that's okay. Come on, it's a totally different character <laughs> who has his own Wikipedia page. That's right. <laughs> really? Respect. Holy shit, I gotta look this up. <laughs> but like, I'm the, read Billy. But the fact that Tobin Bell and I would say part of the writing of Jigsaw can convey. 
the same exact, I would say, amount of terror from a guy who has the most raspiest, bedridden voice ever uh, just, just says a lot about what you can do with just a simple performance. So that's why Jigsaw is my number four. Holy shit, he does. <laughs> you didn't believe me? No. The best thing oh is Oh, my he... God. It's so long. I was just saying, he has, like, multiple <laughs> well, tabs. I mean, there's a backstory there. We had, you know, there's why he's on a tricycle. I mean, that gets explained, and I wish I was kidding. They got uh, characteristics and construction and in popular culture and references. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Well, wow. I mean, you need references, so when people do their high school papers on Billy the Puppet, they can cite things. Oh, so. my God. I'm so happy right now. Yeah. So, so number four for me is uh, Jigsaw from the Saw franchise. I feel like we kind of said we weren't going to do an entire franchise. No, that's but, fine. You're good. Okay. Then then that's what I'm choosing. That, that, that'll He's work. really the same character throughout because all, the, all each film does is try to expand on the exact timeline we've already been accustomed to. This so, is true. So it is the same character. Yeah. Anyway. And he certainly is a much better villain than anyone else in the entire story, especially Detective Hoffman. Yeah, yeah I feel like guy. the only person who rivals him, and I actually almost considered putting on my list, but it was going to be one or the other, is Amanda, because okay. I like the... Shall we say with him we don't get a shall, uh, like a transformation. We see origins and we see mm-hmm. like what led to it. But with Amanda, we see an actual gradual shift and eventually uh, how she goes further than his own ideology. Um, and so I almost chose her because I thought she was kind of this weird and good example of how like you can kind of upstage your own villain when they have a protege done right. But ultimately, it's all because of Jigsaw, and I chose that. Obviously. Good choice, sir. That was Nick's number four. Mine is what we've already discussed on this very episode, oh. so I won't have that much to uh, say about it. And Captain that is... Barbosa. <laughs> <laughs> you son of a bitch. I was just going to say. Yeah. Uh, my number four is Christoph Waltz. Ah, ah sorry. You <laughs> son of a bitch. You can do Thanos. I mean, well, <laughs> that is true. What is with you with Oh, me? Oh, I hate it, too. It's not that I hate Thanos. It's that... I'm indifferent to him. He's supposed to be this great, amazing villain, and no one gives a fuck. That's That's it. Oh, well. Yeah. Sorry, Marvel. So, anyways, uh, Christoph Waltz uh, in the film Inglorious Bastards as Hans Landa. um, That first scene, which I already mentioned when you were talking about it, Brian, is just absolutely fabulous. I remember the when I saw the film in the theater. Uh, I mean, that's that's getting on seven years ago, eight years ago now. Um, when Christoph Waltz was a complete unknown, which is very important to his character in this film, I think, because if mm-hmm. Christoph Waltz had come into a role like this now, we would expect it. But I feel like this laid the groundwork for him really for. He wouldn't have been films. a Bond villain without this. You <laughs> he know. wouldn't have been anything without well, yeah. this film. I mean, and he's actually had an entire. Not an entire career, but in a, a a whole film before he made it, kind of like Marion Cotillard before she got big or oh, whatever. He's, he's done a lot of things, it's yeah, just, but not Amer or not not American, but this mostly a, in his own. Well, uh, that's what, that, that's what yeah. I'm saying. Like yeah. like people who are are foreign who have become big, like him, yeah. Marion Cotillard, that kind of thing. Right. They have had previous careers, and then. Yeah. All of a sudden, he is chosen for this film over Leonardo DiCaprio, which was a good choice. Way oh, yeah. to go, Quentin. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To play Hans Landa. And just, I just remember seeing this film for the first time and not being able to think about anything in this film other than him. And, and that is a mark of a true, incredible character. And even though he is an absolute horrible person uh, to the core, uh, he just has this charm about him that is just undeniable that you have to, you have to, almost just be in on him all the way when he is on screen, no matter what the 
the, the context of the scene is when he pull when when uh, they're in that first scene and he's having that glorious discussion to, when he, they switch and they talk in English. Uh, and the, the the person he's speaking with in France pulls out his pipe, and then he pulls out almost this this audacious, snidely whiplash like pipe to smoke out of his uh, <laughs> coat pocket. It is like the the most like dick measuring contest moment for a villain in a serious film, but it lays the groundwork for him through the rest of the film because he is doing these comical villainous things while at the same time being this extremely maniacal character. And and there's there's so much to Hans Landa and so much to Christoph Waltz's performance. And every time he's on screen, I just, I can't think of anything else in that film. And there are a lot of great things in that film. Melanie Laurent gets introduced as a character. There's another example of a, of a foreign actress yep. who became, uh, you know, more involved in American film after that very same film. Yep. Uh, Brad Pitt puts on a good performance. The, the and he was an unknown before this movie. <laughs> This fucking guy. <laughs> this fucking guy. Alex just clutched his heart. Oh, like, oh, I, oh, I, was just like, <laughs> I have to admit, I absolutely. I, that was a nice inverse. That was good. Yeah. That was great. Normally... But uh, it, we we even get um, film director Eli Roth putting on a yeah. just ridiculously yeah. obnoxious performance the best use here. The Eli great. Roth in Hollywood. Absolutely. There's no way around it, actually, because he, for some reason, is is a horrible actor. But it works here oh, for yeah. some reason. And um, this is just a, a great film, and we've done a whole episode on it, so I'm not yeah. going to go too more into it. But um, Christoph Waltz, who's, even though really other than Tarantino, has had a hard time finding his place and doing really great film roles since. Can we? Um, yeah, I was just going to say, he puts on an absolute all-time performance here as Hans Landa. Can we just say, uh, even though none of them made my list, they were all right on the cusp. I feel like no modern American director creates villains like Tarantino. Uh, you know who is just outside, and this is going to be almost blasphemy, but somebody who I considered putting on my list, but I didn't because I already had Hans Landa, was Stuntman Mike from uh, that Kurt Russell performed Proof? in Death oh, Proof. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and he's great. Yeah, he's great. For, I mean, for, for multiple reasons. The woods One, are lovely, dark, and deep. Well... He has that great scene early in that film, and then he drives Mar. Uh, what what what's her name? Oh, I always forget the actress's name. He drives her to her death, and then he's in the, in the hospital afterwards. Yeah. Um, is it Shelton, something Shelton. I always yeah. forget Wait, her name. Actress or. Was, was it was it was it her? I'm trying to remember the character. Was it Rose McGowan's character? I get them all confused because of the say, double I feature. I don't remember names in that movie, okay. but I remember the presence, especially Kurt Russell's. Uh, but but Rose McGowan was in uh, Planet Terror, I believe. Yeah, yeah but, but she's, she's in, in that one as well. Yeah. So um, anyways, anyway, but stuntman Mike in in that film, in in addition to to the early parts, then you have the incredible scenes later on where they are chasing through and having that great showdown at the end of the film. And yeah, I just I I love the way Tarantino. But usually his 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 villain characters are much more underplayed, especially in his earlier works. As they yeah, have his earlier work for sure. But we're yeah. also coming off now a, a trilogy of movies where you have Hans Landa, Calvin Candy, and um, why am I blanking on Jennifer Jason Lee's character's yeah. name? But um, but anyway, his, but his, those, his, those three characters are some of the best, like outspoken villains. But uh, but his his lesser his lesser characters in the earlier films 
but like I mentioned, Stuntman Mike, another person who is on my huge list that I put together was Mr. Blonde from Reservoir Dogs, yep. who him, is an uh, absolute horrible person. Yes, him, uh, Marcel Wallace yeah. from Pulp Fiction, uh, Odell Robbie. Honestly, like I literally don't think he's ever written a bad villain, which is kind of insane because when we look at something like the state of like. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, but the superhero genre today, like that's where villains should flourish, and we have so many bad villains in that. So, like, I, I just I, I applaud the fact that not only did they make great movies, but he puts a lot of craft into who is driving our protagonists. Wow, Mister <laughs> Mr. Blonde, like uh, I, you're right. That, 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 like, that's... If I were to like go back, I'd, like now I have, I'm not prepared to talk about Mister Blonde, but you're you're right. That, 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 that scene is, when right. he has the police officer I tied down and, and cuts off his, yeah. his his ear is yep. just yeah. and and he's just has that music playing in the background yep. and, and the way he's smiling through it is so and he's fucked not, up. Little... <laughs> <laughs> and, and what really works about him besides the performance is also the fact that he's not introduced in your typical villain way. It's not like the movie starts the movie starts as a team. I mean, you mm-hmm. see the slow motion shot of them all walking. You just don't realize that eventually everybody's going to split off into their own faction and their true colors are going to be revealed. So that's what makes that scene even more horrifying. Yeah. But yeah. His, his ability. I just, I just want to throw since we're talking about villains in general, for me, no, like nobody comes close to what Tarantino does with villains. And I think that is pretty obvious because he's a very sick and twisted guy when he comes to be screenwriting. And like, well, like we are talking about right now is that his villains didn't used to be as large part of the stories, but it seems to be something that he's recognizing himself because they're becoming more and more prominent as his films go on. Yeah, I think ever since like Kill Bill, since he named his movie literally after you know <laughs> like the, the the main evil driving the forest, he started getting more and more fascinated with like what drives somebody to like actually fight evil with evil, so to speak. Okay, so this is you just you're making you're you're making me think here, which is, this is gonna be the inherent problem, which is <laughs> that as we move forward with all of these superhero movies, which we are just underneath they don't they will never take the risks of saying like we're going to do something that is really going to hurt you they're not going to like yeah. oh, we killed quicksilver <laughs> like i mean that's like that's that really going to be that, right that's going to be the thing that really guts us like, too slow like, i just i, <laughs> ooh, I just right? i just oh, got you. introduced to this character in this film and he's gotten gotten killed off and i'm just like and he's the only person Man. in this cinematic universe who's gotten Oh, right, you know, like so that tells you, like, the, the, there's a great irony, in, which is that we have this mass uh, genre of film that will not make us feel something that villains must do, except for maybe the Spider-Man movies. They're the yeah. only superhero movies that I truly started to really the like, early the early versions. Yes, yeah, the the Sam Raimi, yeah. and, and not number three, but those first two, <laughs> the Green Goblin and uh, Doc Ock. Well, is and, and, great. and, and, I, and we don't want to spend too much time talking about offshoots because we have right. long lists to get to. <laughs> but we we've spoken on this in the in the, in the X Men episode where we're, we're starting to get, and it's funny. Mm-hmm. That we're getting to the major villains in all of these these properties. Like we're getting to Ultron and Apocalypse and Thanos and whatever and, the f- and, and Mister Sinister and all of these characters are honestly failing at every at every aspect of what they're supposed to be, and they're just not interesting at all. And whatever the fuck is going to be in Justice League, yeah, yeah. 
I'm sure they'll eventually click on that QuickTime file and we'll figure out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's all there. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's just been a huge yeah. failure recently with For villains sure. and superhero movies, yeah. and it, it's really too bad because yeah. it, it, you're right. This is where villains should flourish in, in this setting, and they are just yeah. not I'm at not all. saying that as an so inherent Let's critique. do a thought experiment just for a second, right? Okay, so let's go back to um, uh, the Revenge of the Sith, right? This yeah. Is, yeah. Okay. Um, what if, what if instead of off screen, we actually do see Anakin really kind of take it to the younglings, you know, like, or the... the yeah, That's yeah, what they yeah, should have yeah. done. Right. What if children. we actually see him, like, just kind of really just run through them? Like, Straight up murdering yeah, children. Yeah, like, we just, we yeah. see it. Like, we no, just, but he's still a good guy. Right. I mean, Fuck like, you. He's Darth Vader. He killed children. Right, I mean, like, <laughs> but let's let's dwell in that, right? Let's push us to that villainy. Like, we know he does, but, like, they, they're, like, saving us. If you're writing that. an origin story... For how someone became the darkest person in the galaxy, I mean, how do you? Yeah, leave I mean, that's why he wouldn't wince at blowing up Alderaan. But, but yeah. I mean, this guy just like just well, went through all these kids, and, and, and we yeah. can talk about talk about off screen too. If we're just speaking on Anakin Skywalker and the prequels, they totally fucked Darth he, Vader. He he he, <laughs> Gross. he also off off screen commits genocide against the it, entire it, yeah, race of Duskin yeah. Raiders in <laughs> the right. second film. Yeah, so. that's true. <laughs> but let's talk more about those trade regulations. <laughs> That's the real <laughs> villain here. That's the we, real villain we here. We will not the survive government. this. Oh, oh, with terrorists. Yeah, and then we spend we spend forty minutes on fucking Christopher Lee's Count Dooku. No one gives a fuck about him. You mean Darth Tyrannus? No one was ever as excited as I was when fucking Hayden Christensen cut his head off with those two lightsabers at the beginning of the third film. Yeah, nobody. His, his curved dildo sword in order wow. to, like, to cap. It looks like a fucking ribbed dildo. How many of you oh, had? Keep drinking. We talk about normally talk about sex toys until have about you ever four looked at today. Count Dooku's like lightsaber before? Anyway, continue. I feel like this is an inkpot test, and you just told us a lot about yourself. <laughs> yeah, whatever. I don't give a fuck. So apparently, back to Han Vanda. Right. Yeah, no, I, 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 we've yeah. we've hit on him already. Let's move on to Brian and his number four. <laughs> okay, so this was one of those like uh, mid conversation edits. So you were talking about. Um, uh, little Shop of Horrors. Yeah. And I'm like, like, you know what? All right. I think I might have to go to kind of like Supernatural. Because this was kind of like on my list almost. But then I'm like, no, I'm going to go with this. Sorry, I'm not getting in the mic. Um, John Carpenter's The Thing. So. Yes. So, yes. so yes. The only reason why that was not on my list is because of what I predicated before with the, the exclusion of the xenomorph because I feel like that qualifies as something that is a, a primal alien yeah and, and that was pretty close with me as well which is like you know to get into the xenomorph which would be like it would, yeah, I'd have to go on to the like real some, monster is man yeah exactly like you know the secrets that we keep in that come out like I don't want to get into Freudian theory like this like let's get <laughs> let's into let's do it yeah so but with, with the, the thing <laughs> Nick just got like Forrest Whitaker eyes and he's like let's do it where one of his eyes was twitching that's racist uh, yeah. no it's not it's Forrest Whitaker eyes <laughs> if there was ever like the scene where they were testing the blood, yeah, I mean to to then see like how we test our own humanity against that. To me, like like where again, it's like who are the real monsters? You know, I love that that sensibility that that monster brought out on us, and I, I brought out of uh, from us is uh, brilliant. So that's um, that was that was one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I Tucson showed me that movie. I mean, I 
knew of it, but yeah. I never actually sat down. To watch I, it. I watched it with him for the first time. And Still it never was, seen it. Uh, okay, so we're not going to talk. So good. We're not going to yeah. talk a lot about it because uh, Alex still needs to see it, and that's one of those films that you need to like. It's, I think you would agree, Nick. That's one of those films you it's should. It's going to be an episode right around September when nothing else is out. Oh Lord, yeah, I'm so we'll excited. Do it for, maybe October will be another horror month. There you yeah. go. We'll do that. Boom. Sleepaway yeah. camp and yep. something. <laughs> we're doing sleepaway. Blood Diner. Did you see it yet? No, but I I do want to ever since you tweeted that. The best. It's so good. <laughs> oh, you got it. But ever since Tucson showed me that movie, I will admit I, I I've been I go back and forth on John Carpenter, but I absolutely love what he did in that movie. And I will admit there are some creature effects just to get down to like basics of like just movie making. Uh, there's some creature effects in there effects in there that I absolutely like. I, I when I watched it for the first time, I was kind of floored by. It. I mm-hmm. mean, this is 2015 when we watched it, and yet I was like, "Oh, like you know, when the um, when uh, the, like the body caves in mm-hmm. instead of out, you know, like that weird inverse of what we normally expect from these creature features. It's it just so unsettling, and it all thematically goes back to like what's buried underneath our skin rather than you know what's on the outside. Four words: yeah. the dog kennel scene. Yeah, yeah, that was it. That I was mean, great. like that was. I mean, that really set up. And it, but Let's not talk a lot about that. But like thematically, it's very close to one of my favorite Twilight Zone episodes. The monsters are due, the on, due on Maple, Maple Street. Street. I mean, yep. it's that's very, one of the greatest episodes. Very guy thematically, knows. like of that one. Basically, that's. That's yep. American culture at this moment right now. Yep. I mean, what's what's happening? So, God. but yes, you're speaking next language, by the way. Really Twilight are. Zone. If we did TV, like if we, not that we would, but if we included <laughs> TV in this list, I feel like three out of the six would have been Twilight Zone episodes mm-hmm. because they were the best of that. Yeah, you would appreciate that. I think I'm raising my son right. He's probably on season three, going uh, 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 Twilight Zone. So you that would appreciate is, this. It's gonna make me cry. You're, yeah. you're doing I it. know. You're, you're doing it right. He loves it. You he are. loves it. So we and we talk about it. Imagine stuff, a so, child yeah. Yeah. that gets a wonderful education. I watched my first Twilight Zone episode in a long time after Nick told me about the Christmas episode. I don't remember the name of it. The Night of the Meek. Yes. yes. Uh, and I watched it. And it was during a really bad time for the Twilight Zone show because it was when they were filming. Yes. They not... did like 10 of them in videotape because they thought they were going to caught uh, cuss yeah. and, uh, cuts. And then once they did those 10, they were like, this is the worst thing in the world but, for obvious reason. But it's the best videotape episode they ever did. I've, I And I honestly really want to watch more Twilight Zone because it is it when you watch television today and in the in the way we we give television out and just in, in the way modern television has become and you watch television with the the incredible sort of way they were able to have a 22 minute episode or even shorter than that for mm-hmm. you and, and these yeah. great small single serving size stories that are filled with horror and fantasy and and, and pretty much everything just Had letting your mind and produced within a week's time yeah. back to back yeah. and just letting your mind just run just 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 going with what the story is giving you is just so fucking creative, and, and it, it's just something that we just really don't see today. And when it comes to the villainous aspect, the those stories in the Twilight Zone, not that we're getting too off topic, <laughs> but I'm going to do it anyway <laughs> for five seconds, yeah. which is that the stories can be appreciated on a literal level as far as they're fun to watch, and you never know. You know, they're just a riddle to unpack, and yet... Almost ninety percent of them, I would say, have real world implications, and like just to be able to talk about a twenty five minute piece of television for hours, in my opinion, uh, yeah, it's just uh, it's it, great. The, the, it's it's what Rod Serling did is amazing. I actually think yeah. the thing is pretty much there is actually. <laughs> 
a Twilight Zone episode <laughs> in which a uh, eight strangers are stranded in a diner. Um, and one of yes. them, yes, uh, and the Shatner state, in that one. Why do I think no? He was? Shatner's not in that one. He's in the uh, Nightmare at Fifty Thousand. Yeah, yeah. He but, was in two. Of well, yeah, he's in. Yeah. A, but that a was that gremlin was famous. The wing. <laughs> <laughs> when but, you see the difference, the thing looks like a Care Bear in his version, <laughs> jumping off and down. Versus yeah, the yeah. one that was yes. in the. Uh, but there's an episode in season two. I want to say that um, it, it like. People get stranded in a diner. There's eight people. Uh, the state troopers saw a UFO. One state trooper saw a UFO land and saw somebody walk out and walk into that diner. So when he gets to the diner, because he had to call for backup first, there was just eight humans. So he has to figure out which of the eight, because he keeps interrogating which one. Like, did he walk in for it? Whatever. It's essentially like the hateful eight meets the thing, so to speak. Wow. Um, and it, 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 that's why I feel like when I watch John Carpenter's yeah. thing, it feels like the one, like the yeah. great film expansion of the Twilight Zone that the Twilight Zone movie never was. Uh, but and the but, hateful eight itself was already a, sort of a a, a thematic yeah. riff off of the thing in that in that sort of sense. It's not with an alien aspect, but trying to like see out who was. But and the way that they'll just like in the thing, the way that like they do the blood test and like they do all these things that seem scientific and seem whatever, but in some ways they're just arbitrary because it it really does boil down to that that fear of like you know persecution and that kind of stuff that I absolutely eat up. Fun fact about Rod Serling, he. uh, I think he was uh, known to have smoked six packs of cigarettes a day. That makes a lot of sense. I never, I've never seen a promo photo of him where he With did that, not have a cigarette. There it is. There, <laughs> six God. packs of cigarettes. I'm the, really uh, quick, on the Blu-ray set of the Twilight Zone Complete Series, you can see and watch the entirety of the 10-minute network pitch that he did to sell the Twilight Zone to it. And he is like the most like fidgety person ever that I feel like he just had a cigarette just before, but then like because he couldn't have one while he was actually oh, like yeah. he was going through withdrawal within those 10 it, minutes. It's funny because he, and I, I'm going to get into sports a little bit here, but uh, hey, we've gone everywhere else. <laughs> what what uh, voices and, and, and hearing voices is something that, that, that brings you back. It's, it's really easy. Like like for me, smells do that too because mm-hmm. I have a really good sense of smell for some reason. I can I can smell something and, and remember some event that happened 15 years ago, whatever. Mm-hmm. But hearing voices is one of those things when you hear something that is just so like easy for you to listen to is something that is just – sticks with me for some reason. And other than John Miller, who's a, a baseball uh, analyst, who's, who's who's a play-by-play man, he's for the uh, San Francisco Giants, I believe now, used to be on Sunday Night Baseball, just so easy to listen to, just like Vin Scully is for the Los Angeles Dodgers. But uh, anytime I hear Rod Sterling doing one of those early or late in the episode kind of voiceover slash you know walk and talk whatever you want to call it he just has that voice that makes me want to listen to him talk more and yeah. it's, it's it's just amazing it is yeah. so, so now we've talked about rod sterling for <laughs> 10 minutes let's move on to just yeah to i know yeah it's, it's great uh anyway um Whoa. we're at number four correct yeah <laughs> yeah uh, I mean, forget, no we're at number one so just hurry up <laughs> forgive me we've, we've talked about a lot of stuff um for number four, my uh, villain is Gene Hackman in his role as Rankin Finch in the film Runaway Jury. Okay. Oh, yeah. wow. wow. I was not expecting to hear that one, but okay. Yeah, I, I think that's a particularly um, 
timely one, maybe, uh, given some things that have been going on now. Is like Rankin Finch plays as a jury consultant um, working on behalf of Vicksburg Firearms in order to defend them from culpability for a um, an office shooting for a, a disgraced uh, trade broker. And I, I think that really what sold me about that character – one, I think that Gene Hackman is a is a terrific actor. That was one that was one of the if not the first role I've ever seen him in. And I know that last year, like for one of our first episodes, we reviewed um, the conversation, the conversation, which is another one of his uh, most notable films. So it just kind of like compounded. It's it. funny when you look back on Gene Hackman too, like the number of iconic films he's been in, like French Connection and that mm-hmm. kind of thing is yeah. is a high number. <laughs> yeah, I mean he he retired on a high. I feel like he he's he, he, re- yeah. no, he retired on oh. Welcome to Mooseport. Oh. That was hey, his, you know literally what? his retirement. At movie. least he retired after that and hasn't been like yeah. Al Pacino or Robert De Niro yeah. that just keeps cashing them checks. Baby. I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, he, anyway. he I, at least he knew where, where when to stop, but he already delivered some some terrific roles up until that. Like uh, Royal Tenenbaums. Re- really, Sorry. really, what uh, <laughs> resonates with me for Rankin Finch is that the first scene that you see him in, where he's actually being like taken to New Orleans in order to like help select the jury, like, to help yeah. cultivate the jury. And he's in um, a taxi cab and he's talking to a person and he's basically reading and intuating uh, different sorts of relationships with a almost a 90, I would say 98, 99% like accuracy rate. Like he knows how to read people. And I think that's really interesting. Like somebody who has that kind of talent, like he, he he has obvious talent in knowing how to read people. He knows how to play off of like human nature in different ways, and I think that that on its own is is fascinating and admirable in sort of ways. Like, how does he have this intuitive ability to be able to read people? Like, he's just did he major in psychology, or is this something that's just like intuitively ingrained in him? But at the same time, he's very literate. He's uh, very intelligent. He knows how to work in a uh, a negotiation uh, room and. He, he's basically decided to use his skills to acquire the most wealth as possible and just happens that it comes at the cost of his fucking immortal soul. <laughs> uh, so It's eh, not a bad price. Uh, uh, I mean, he gets, I gotta say, he gets his in the end. So. I, can't, I can't believe we're talking about this movie. Not because it's bad or good or anything like that, mm-hmm. but God, I actually watched this movie all the time when I was a child right. because I actually used to read John Grisham movie, uh, books when I was really young. Like maybe wow. far, like, like fifth, sixth grade I used to you read. You know what? I'm and, not even yeah. surprised by that. If anyone told me that they read John Grisham books, like I wouldn't believe them. But if it's Nick, like I could totally believe that. Yeah, I, and I did. And so then I used to chase down all the film adaptations, like yeah. that one, The Rainmaker. But uh, Runaway Jury is the one I used to watch a lot as a child. And I don't mean that in the sense I haven't watched it since. So that doesn't mean it's a bad movie. But I've actually been meaning to rewatch it because I remember just kind of really, really liking it. Yeah. And I will John admit, Cusack? I was going to say John Cusack, but specifically the, I would say the, uh, the duality between Gene Hackman and Dustin Hoffman mm-hmm. has actually really stayed with me. Um, and I, I completely forgot that the main case was actually about the shooting. So you're mm-hmm. right in the sense that it is uh, unfortunately timely in this mm-hmm. day and age. Like back then, it's not that shootings weren't happening or anything right, like that. But, but like now, it just, it just feels like it's even more at home. And mm-hmm. that would just make it even more kind of horrifying to watch Gene Hackman's uh, character going around trying to defend it. Right. Yeah. It's... And yet that's what people are doing. Yeah. 
So that's my number four, uh, Rankin Finch from uh, Runaway Jury. Excellent. Good stuff. Moving on to number three. We're halfway through. We Believe are. it or not, a, an hour and a half in. And I have another <laughs> <laughs> number number three for me is another movie that we've already talked about, so I'm not okay. going to talk about that much. But it's just one of those that I can't not talk about it. I couldn't help myself. <laughs> but it is the character Raymond Lamorne from The Vanishing. I, You know what? It's funny that even though this isn't a film that's really high on um, my rankings, I, I really enjoyed the film and I definitely want to see it again. Yeah. But he's someone who was close to making my, my sheet of list because... Yeah. Boy, he is a fucking psycho, man. Let me tell you what. He that really is, is. That is that is a character right there. He, he, what I love about and the reason why he's higher up than compared to the others yeah. is the fact that when you watch that movie, first of all, you're introduced to him pretty quickly. Like you, the first twenty minutes, you, you you're not you're introduced to the protagonist and what they were doing the day of that the event happens. Uh, and for those who don't know, it's a movie about a man and wife who, uh, in case you haven't listened to the episode. <laughs> Uh, a man and wife who are uh, stop at a gas station. The wife just disappears. You find out quite literally five to ten minutes later that he took her. Uh, well, I would say you're able to imply it from that point because you start to see that he's. But that's it. not like a, a surprise at the no, end no, of the no, film no. or anything no. like that. Yeah. No, the surprise comes in the form of what he'll do to the man mm-hmm. and what he won't. You'll see, and I won't even and, spoil that. And the the actions that he will show throughout the film because he is. Quite the interesting individual. He is. And so and that's why I absolutely love him. And yeah. he, he almost was like, for a long time, I feel like he was my number one. And I'll explain later when I talk about my number one, why I ended up switching that. This is, there are two versions of this, right? There's, isn't there like a key for There's Sutherland? one version of it. There was another version that got made. <laughs> okay. I, I may have seen the wrong one. And that the, was the, in high school when I saw it. The so one with I, Jeff I, Bridges I, and Keeper Sutherland is the American remake yes. directed by the same guy, which Ew. I don't know why, yeah. uh, why he thought he had to remake his own movie just for English okay. audiences. The, the, this film, though, and, and we did a whole episode on it. We saw this for the first time when Nick showed it to us. But this includes a amazing scene where the villain, which you're talking about Nick now, is sitting in the background, unbeknownst to the audience, yes. uh, out of focus for like four minutes in a scene, and then you finally find out he's there. And it is quite and excellent. you already know That's about genius. him too. You do. It's just the way that the, the movie plays with your perception on his his reach and his grasp. Of, That's so of, cool. Of what he That's... can do and and what he's willing to do. But the reason why I ended up including him, uh, just in general, the reason why I'm gravitate toward him is the fact that I love that. The more you watch The Vanishing, like from start to finish, the more you start to learn a little bit about him. But the more you learn about him and the more the trope is inverted as to like having a tragic backstory because he tells a story in the movie about how he uh, jumped to what he thought would be his death, like suicide when he was very young. But all he ended up doing was breaking his arm. And it's at that moment that the movie could have went in one direction where you find out that he like that's his reason for doing heinous crimes because he just broke bad, so to speak, and he became mm-hmm. evil. Instead, it's not that he became more evil. He just realized that very kind of existentialist and niche whatever philosophy that nothing does matter and like you think you might do this but really you'll just break your arm and the best thing that came out of that event was that he decided that he realized that he still uh he used his his cast to 
lure women like like all that ended up being was a plot point you know to to make him more sympathetic and he really has this complete amorality going on i was gonna say uh, another thing that is absolutely horrifying about his character but also so enticing to for the viewer to get into the story is that he is continuously in a, on a mission to find the point where he cannot do this anymore where it's- he can no longer go on this path like he's already he's done something that is is too terrible for even him and he has to stop and he never reaches that point yeah and that's it is, that's the other thing yeah. exactly that and, and, and not that i would say that he's a good person or anything like that because i don't want this to be misconstrued mm. but the fact that his pursuit is that exact quest like it, it it does differ so much from what we typically expect from a bad guy because he just like you said he wants to see where he'll where his limit will be, and that's what ultimately makes him terrifying. And his solution to this entire problem, which I also have to think is also kind of terrifying, because uh, the the male in this movie whose uh, wife was abduct- abducted, you know, he gets obsessed with trying to get her back if he can because he doesn't know what happened to her or if he can't just to find out what happened and what i kind of like about the uh character i always forget his name uh raymond uh the villain i know that sounds bad i forget his name but it's really just the performance and you know his uh his just look but what i love about the way that raymond steps back into the plot is that like he kind of keeps his distance like he was basically done with her and him to an extension but it's because the guy wouldn't let it go that he finally was like Okay, like it almost seems like he was doing it for him, even though it's the worst thing to do to tell him uh, what he did to her. But he does that by only doing it to him. And that ending can only be described as one of the most horrific endings to a movie I've ever seen. I'll agree. And not only that, but then the, the action that is taken by our villain and then just his reaction shot which is just him reading the newspaper and uh basically ignoring it and uh it's just fantastic and it's funny too because the ending to this film is once you see the end of this film you realize that we've already pretty much experienced this ending from a different perspective earlier on in the film and boy it is it is something it really is so that's why for me it's it's uh raymond lamorne from the vanishing it's Mm. one of it's probably the one out of the entire list i've gotten under my skin the most besides my number one but as far as like a true horror villain like somebody who it's it's an irrational fear because most people don't do what he does to people but if they did it to the extent that he does it, that would be the worst thing in the world to me. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so that's 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 my number three. Good choice, sir. So my number three. Um, while Dalton Russell may have been my favorite addition to this list, um, my most proud addition was number three because this is uh, the one who is going to absolutely be on my list no matter what, no matter where he was going to land. This person was going to always be on my list, no matter what. Thanos. <laughs> you son of a bitch. <laughs> you son of a bitch. And this is a character portrayed by Gary Oldman, and this is not in the film Leon the Professional. 
Oh, um, yeah. I know which film it is. And, and you do. And this is his portrayal of Ivan Korshnikov in the film Air Force One in one of the most shouty performances you will ever see in your yes. entire life. More shouty than in Leon the Professional. Absolutely. Okay. I would say there's more shouts, but I want to say in Leon there might be like... It's more impactful. Yeah, like as far as yeah, like more like, why did he just that, shout yeah. that? But... But Gary yeah. Oldman is shouting in literally every scene of this film. <laughs> yeah, like, God. this was the tipping point, because after this, Gary Oldman, and I don't want to say directly after this, but pretty much you could look at his career, and it was going more and more towards the crazy shouting person, and now it's been completely toned down. Mount the cop! Yeah. And I think, not that this is the film that did it, but this was like the ultimate culmination of all of that because that is his portrayal here and it is just fucking great. Because this is a, it's a film that I would not say is a good film, but it is a fun ride the entire way through. It has bad lines. Even I enjoy it. (laughs) Like that says a lot about a kind of just your typical action flick, I would say. It, It has silly politics. It has politics. Political policy throughout. It has a president being abducted on his plane, and that is the entire plot line of the film. And it, it has all these characters that are just interweaving throughout the film, most of whom do not make it through the entirety of the film, which almost makes this like a weird, not horror film, but but it's weird that that you start off with all these characters and not many of them make it to the end. I will say nowadays when you have a similar thriller with. Uh, one that's concerned with like a hostage situation. I feel like we are more delicate because of certain real world events uh, as to just casual shooting. As this was of, a pre nine eleven film, right? Pre nine eleven, pre. I mean, this film would have never just, been made today. Not in at the same all. way. No, no. I, I don't think at least. Um, and I, I agree in the sense that it is kind of at least I, I will admit I think the most important characters survive because mm-hmm. the president and his yeah. family survives. But up until that point. All the staffers. Fair game. Yeah, I was gonna say like, and not just fair game, but it is not. It's not even like that. He gives ultimatums like, "Oh, I'm, he does," but like, "I'm just gonna." But when he decides to just uh, take an assault rifle and shoot, like, it is treated like that's what is happening, and, and not just as like a well, it's a chess game or something. But we, we and this is something that's it was important for me in in sort of my distinction of why I, how I was talking about villains and, and how I was going to make my list. Because early on in this film, when him and the rest of his terrorist friends make their way onto the plane, they are extremely charming. And he is able to talk his way and sort of earn this trust with all of these different people on the plane before the actual plane takes yep. off and the real story starts. And then we have a complete 180 when we see shouty Gary Oldman <laughs> just show up on screen and he never leaves. No. And boy, I gotta tell you, as as um, villain death scenes go, seeing your shouty villain getting choked by a parachute to end <laughs> um, to, <laughs> to, to to end your villain's uh, character's role in a film is quite a something, and yeah. it also is one of uh, the greatest horrible lines of all time. Delivered by Harrison Ford, where he says, "Get off my plane." Um, it, it, I need it, to yeah. watch this now. Oh, you really dude. should. Uh, it, it, we watched it. To, me and Alex watched it together. Oh, like one after one of these. I episodes. think it's yeah. on Netflix now. Yeah. It may be. It's. It's. If not, I we. I think we both own it. I think so. Yeah. I have it on Blu-ray. A, yes. It is quite the entertaining film. Uh, I will say, and Gary Oldman puts on an all-time performance for yes. me. 
if not just because he is charming early on, he does have some funny lines of dialogue, and man, he is shouting in every scene possible here, and he is just going full Gary Oldman here, and it is great. Because especially now, we see him as like Jim Gordon, or like movies like The Book of Eli, or something like that. Like his his whole act has completely gone in a different direction, but this was the height of crazy Gary Oldman, and I love it. Me too. His so, performance as the pimp in True Romance was, I mean, <laughs> what, all five minutes, yeah. but it was like, how did he, I mean, that was, um, that was fantastic. Um, the, uh, it, it's amazing how th- that formula of let's take Die Hard, but yep. we'll put it on a train for Under Siege. And then we'll do it on the plane for this. Like it, it works though. I mean, it like, does. I mean, I mean, I, I I'm, not, any... I'm not hating. I'm just saying, like this. It actually, there's something about that constriction. I and even like White House Down. I mean, Die Hard in the White <laughs> House. Right? You shut the hell up. Son. <laughs> not on my Jordans. <laughs> no, but I'm with you in the yeah. sense that it doesn't matter how bad or good it is. I always want to watch it. No, Under Siege was great. Yeah. My, my memory of it was, was fun. Yeah. yeah. And that and that's the thing about this film is that even though it is definitely a serious story and there are serious actors, including Harrison Ford here, uh, this is a, a film that it, that is meant to be entertaining for the audience. And I believe that uh, Gary Oldman as Ivan Korshnikov in Air Force One puts on an all-time entertaining villain performance. So he's my number three. And let's move on to Brian with his number three. So uh, number three, uh, so many options still left on the table here. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, I think Toussaint is going to maybe fence with me on this one. (laughs) um, uh, And it's it's more of like what it means to us in, in terms of the human experience of what Heath Ledger and the Joker character represent in that movie. And so, so your number I three think, is Scarecrow. Yeah, <laughs> clearly, <laughs> clearly. Uh, Ew. So, um, with with uh, Heath Ledger as Joker, the 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 shiftiness of every narrative that he provides of how he gets his scars and the you know of course the the most you know uh, used uh, reference of when Alfred is talking to some men just want to watch the world burn. He's right? just a dog chasing we, cars. He wants to watch the world burn. It's yeah. like you hear about how I got these scars. Like, yeah. okay. but I I buy it because like I think what makes that so unsettling is because I always think about this, which is that you know as humans like we need answers yeah i need to know motive and this guy provides none and that it's like imagining like just like your son just walks away and never comes back like we need answers and the fact that there's none of that and he will never provide it is so unsettling and i think that's what makes him a very satisfying villain is because he pushes us to that extent how about the idea too and even though many people including myself are left completely um, without any sort of answers here at all and unsatisfied extremely. How about his specific portrayal of the Joker and the fact that Heath Ledger dies and we never get the answer to how his character would have, his arc would have ended in The Dark Knight Rises? Yeah, it's it's, it's one of those things that is is kind of unintentionally, utterly unintentionally, like, expounded upon simply for, like, the not only the the fact that Heath Ledger died, but the proximity of his death to yes. when that film actually came out, kind of like catapulted that particular like role. It's hard to think how we could separate the two. Yeah, how, how yeah, we, I, we, we yeah. can't really separate the two. It's like it's always the this this combination of like what drove him to do this. Like mm-hmm. it's it's the whole search for answers that you're talking about. And I think that honestly, that's 
probably the most interesting thing that I've heard about the Joker in a very long time. So maybe well, thank I'll, you. <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll honestly, I, I don't think I've heard anybody else like really like articulate as well as that, like what the appeal, the, one of the core appeals of that character is because all they talk about is like, oh, he's so cool. It's like, oh, like I, I it's one of those things where so, I, so like for example, like, on my list, I also had Hans Gruber from Die Hard, right? Which yeah. is like, all right, we get it. He wants money, and every, like we can go through all these and, and think like there's a motive behind all these characters with Joker. No, and we'll never get it. It doesn't matter. I'm talking about specifically the Heath Ledger. One. Yeah, it's it's just I'm I'm sort of uh, when 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 the film obviously came out, I was like, I obviously felt that was a great villain. I think that you know Heath Ledger's portrayal of the Joker is still great, regardless of how tired I might be of people wearing his fucking face on T-shirts and regurgitating his lines at Comic Con and just constantly like reposting. Uh, uh, memes on Facebook. He's like, you know, when I was younger, I thought the joke was wrong, but then I grew up and I really was right. I'm just like, fuck you, <laughs> fuck you. Anyway, what if the Joker was Neo? Shut the <laughs> fuck up! No, you that... have no idea what you've unleashed. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Oh <laughs> my god! We, we have to turn it back to Thanos. At some point. <laughs> Jesus <laughs> Christ! But but anyway, I'm I'm I feel like. As good as that villain is, I'm not really happy. I I, I am so displeased with the with the Joker effect. Not only just in, in people sort of like lionizing this fictitious character, but simply for the fact of like how that that character was so distinct and so like like iconic that it affected almost every single like subsequent Hollywood villain in such a way. Like sort of the the depiction of um, the the villain in. Not Skyfall, but yeah, even in Skyfall, it was like where the where the villain in Skyfall has like all these like different quirks and these mannerisms that are sort mm. of like cluing into like I, got, to, I, feel, I feel you. You know, what I'm, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying about and, and uh, then you can, know, can, can I give you a specific example? Yes, please. From Skyfall. Yeah, when he gets uh, the knife stabbed in his back at the end of the film, mm-hmm. and he specifically turns around and like flips his hair in a certain way and right. says, "Oh come on, I couldn't even get my final line in." Yeah, like every time I see that, I in instantly think of the joke they have to be so flamboyant and catty just like um the villain in the last james bond film i'm trying to remember i'm trying to call blofeld? it blofeld? So, yeah blomfeld blofeld blofeld, blofeld. yeah blofeld has to be like this <laughs> ominous character who's who's like well even, blofeld is a character i mean are you talking about christoph waltz i'm talking about christoph, Cross, okay. christoph waltz's depiction of blofeld because he's been certainly a, a bond villain before yeah i know he's been a blonde, bond, bond villain yeah i know he's been the bond villain before but i feel like there's just he's like the joker there's too the many <laughs> there's too many fucking jokerisms populating everything and so it's like when everything is like the joker nothing feels like the joker and nothing feels distinct i will say i don't know that i see any parallels between blofeld even chris waltz i feel i just feel like like everybody saw that and it's like oh we have to I replicate that's that, that right. formula so, i mean in I our character so i, I, I do think, i think that's that's probably what it has that resonance, though, right? right? So it's just like that. That is striking a nerve. We demand. Uh, we didn't. We we are we are a species that demands answers, and we want proof. We want I mean, like this is. We're always searching for reason and all that, and he knowingly dangles that. that right i mean and it puts it away from us and i think that's to me what what grinds <laughs> and, at and us. we couldn't even get a resolution at the end of the dark knight because as he's flying off of the building just as jack nicholson does in the tim burton batman mm-hmm. he's saved by batman for yeah. the third film in the i trilogy. think we'll do this forever 
Yeah. <laughs> nah. Uh, can I say really quickly that the Joker is not on my list, uh, and he is one of the surprising characters who did not end up on my list, much like Magneto, mm-hmm. who I thought would be an easy selection for mm-hmm. this. And I didn't put them on the list because I wanted to pick a specific film for these characters that I mm-hmm. chose. And I have a hard time, especially the Joker, who's probably my favorite villain of all time. Mm-hmm. But I love how the Joker has progressed through time. You go from Cesar Romero, who's a very interesting Joker, <sighs> but is is yeah. is at least somewhat entertaining to watch in the early, especially yeah. all the all the um, amazing sort of stories you hear from the the not wanting to shave his mustache to the way he plays the character to Jack Nicholson playing the Joker to Mark, Hamill. Mark Hamill's iconic voice work as the Joker and then Heath Ledger and now who knows with Jared Leto mm. what that's going to be mm. but the ah, Joker the- ah, ah, <laughs> ah, damn it <laughs> the Joker over time we might all, all, all eat our words when that film comes out so we'll see I, I'd like to eat any word <laughs> I just like doing that the, <laughs> the Joker over time has been probably the most iconic villain of all time in mm-hmm. any story superhero or otherwise because comic book wise yes because it's well even even so, in terms of fictional stories, because it has just been done so well that it it, it comes back to the story that it's the character, not the people playing it, because mm-hmm. they're just playing a character. But at the same time, I can't cite a specific example because they're all actually pretty good, mm-hmm. and it's weird. There's actually a storyline. I have actually been reading the New 52 series for, for the comic books because I just... I don't really give a fuck about about DC <laughs> comics right now. It's like it's it's it's, it's weird for me. But there's this um, there's this plot point where somehow Batman gains omniscience and he tries to like figure out who the the actual identity of the Joker is, and he can know pinpoint like that this person is the Joker, and it actually ties in into a very interesting way of like how there's been this legacy of Jokers because like he he finds out the true identity of the Joker, but he realizes that. The Joker that he has been battling for all these years has been three or four different people, and they actually <laughs> they actually cite like the original Caesar, uh, what's his name, Caesar Romero. Romero, Caesar Romero, and then they have like the Mark Hamill Joker, and then they have Jack Nicholson's oh. Joker. It's so fucking nuts. It was so amazing, and yet that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, it's so like it was like which one's the one that killed my parents. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, but but what you're talking about, Brian, with with the I mean, that's it, one of the most e- one of the easiest choices to to have as, as a villain mm-hmm. in any film because The Dark Knight is a top five film for me all mm-hmm. time, and Heath Ledger Joker is a huge part of that just because he's able to drive that entire film. And when you look back on it, two in a two hour and twenty minute runtime, whatever it is, he's on screen for like seventeen minutes, yeah. and yet he affects every single part of that film mm-hmm. in almost any way possible. And man, yep. Okay, okay. Moving on to the sun is number three. All right, so my number three. Um, Alex made a little joke that oh most of my my villains on this list would be anime characters, and actually, no, they're not. There's only one. And there's, here it is. There's only one anime character, <laughs> and that is um, Tetsuo Shima from Katsuhiro Otomo's Akira, like the landmark 1988 like animated film. I mean, I like this is your film, right? Like th- 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 this is like this the is anime. My, this is my bread and butter. Th- this do is not, your shit, right do here. Do not fuck with my bread and butter. This is like up there next to Ghost in the Shell. Do not fuck with my bread and butter. Gotcha. Anyway, um, 
So, yeah, like like I just said, Akira is one of my all-time favorite comic books, uh, graphic novels, fictional property stories of all time. It's like I, I think that it's just a an, an incredible science fiction, cyberpunk, body horror, like, epic. It, it's literally like his, his magnum opus. He never needed to make another thing after mm-hmm. this. Um, and basically for you guys who don't know what the context of it is, like in, in at least in the, the film depiction, in 1988, the same year that the film came out, uh, Tokyo is destroyed in a mysterious mass explosion which uh, sparks World War III. And then it jumps forward immediately to 2019, where Tokyo has basically rebuilt itself as Neo Tokyo, um, and now they are the host of the uh, 2020 uh, nat- like International Olympics, right? And amidst all of this, there is social turmoil. There are student protests. Uh, there is martial law. Um, there are youths that have been disaffected and like left on the un- undercrust of this society that basically drive um like motorcycles and join these things called bosuzuku gangs which are like riding lightning or something like that it, it's it's actually pulled from katsuhiro tomo's own experience of growing up during like the 1968 like student protests of that time like i'm just learning about japanese post-war japanese history now and it's really fascinating to have that context but anyway the reason why i like tetsuo shima so much is because everything that happens is is centralized around him like he Something happens at the beginning and he kind of like has this this power that's sort of like sparked in him and it kind of like ties back to the old adage of absolute power corrupts absolutely. Tetsuo is a kid who never had power in his entire life. He was already left aside by society. His parent he, – he's an orphan. He, his parents did not die. His parents left him. His parents left him because they could not like afford to like raise him and so he was brought up as a ward of the state. And so then he fell in with these other kids who who made their own like motorcycle bosuzuku gang. And then he sort of got relegated in his own way to being sort of the little brother of the group of the the main like leader of it whose whose name is Kanida. And to be in and to to grasp for power like that to try and like reclaim the only thing that's really your own. And still being second to somebody else and not being able to become your own person, become your own man. Like that's really what steers him. Like he's he's powerfully insecure. And so when he does have this power that comes through in him, like it's it's absolutely horrifying because he's not only the antagonist, he's the protagonist. He's mm-hmm. the one who's his main actions, like he's the one who's propelling this forward. And it's this constant back and forth. Like if you actually watch the film, one of the, the most common jokes is that they're always crying out each other's names, like Kanida, Tetsuo. It's like yeah. it's bad dubbing and shit. But you have to really look at the context of, like, why are they doing that? Like, there are multiple times throughout this entire film that they have the chance to kill one another, and yet they don't. It's because out of all this thing, in this huge opus, this this, this huge large-scale thing where it's talking about this ominous, like, power that is known only as Akira that may or may not have been responsible for Tokyo being destroyed, when we're talking about, like, all this political and, and international strife that's going on, if you boil down this story to its to its basic conceit, to its basic concept, it is the horror of watching your best friend transform into a monster. It's about the ways that we unintentionally, like like in Magnolia, the ways that we unintentionally inflict pain upon the people that are closest to us, upon the people who we love, and what happens when inadvertently that transforms them into something that we can no longer recognize. And so that's why I... 
I, 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 I'm, I'm really attached to Tetsuo, honestly, because I don't know how to feel about him. It's like I, I think it's like we gotta put this fucking kid down, dude. Well, I mean, you're, you're in the in the spectrum of thinking about villainy, which is what when do we ascribe the power of choice? At the moment when I could have made a difference, you know, like in, at in what point did he go insane? Right. Like. Well, wait, that, point well, is, so here's the thing. What is ins- I mean, in this case, was this character pathologically ex- I- insane? Where we think like, okay, no, that's he, like, or was it just a series of he, bad? He wasn't choices like this that, before. Yeah. Like he, he literally had no power before. He was, he was trying to prove himself to everybody else in the gang. He even stole kind of his bike at one point and just trying to assert his own manhood. Mm, fucking dick. <laughs> well, yeah, and then he gets the, the shit beat out of him, and then Kanye and the rest of the guys have to come and rescue him, and he, there's this really impassioned thing, and he's like, you need to shut the fuck up and like leave me alone. It's like, how come you always have to come and rescue me? Hmm. And it, it's... it's What was what was his... Because I, I don't know the movie. What was his act of, of villainy that... I mean, like, so if you could crystallize that for me, like, what what did he do that say, oh, yeah, that was that was bad? After he, he broke out of the hospital, he actually murdered a lot of people on, on the way, like, through the hospital, but is really when he went back to the bar that they always go back to and he mm-hmm. saw um, Yamagata and like another person from the gang and he actually murdered Yamagata and like mm. a couple other people like somebody that was very close to him because he just he just felt like was doing that a, it was an act of passion or was it premeditated like just give me the we never so, see it yeah so like it's it's not not even that case but then he just goes on a, a rampage and just mm. is cutting a swath of destruction while there is a military coup going on yeah. Because of the domino effect of him, like, like interjecting like all these different things. There's so many different like levels of, of events and of, of interaction and clashes that are going on that are at play here. And then, then there's like this this, uh, this this one scene where Tetsuo's girlfriend um, is just like trying to like escape through the city, and she ends up like being in front of like this entire array of televisions and it's basically talking about like the government wants us to go down, but we're trying to do this for freedom of the press, and then. Um, they they show a shot of Tetsuo like fighting off against like some of the Kudida forces, mm. and then people are lionizing him as though he's Akira, and it, it just it's 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 it's, it's... I, I fucking love this film. Yeah. Whatever, <laughs> yeah. But it's so, interesting though, like because like one of the conspicuous absences of of our of our list would be like who has been a uh, there's no war well with the exception of maybe uh, Lanza right like mm. which but, but I'm talking about like where the type is like but he's singularly hunting down people whereas we're talking about swaths of people I mean Hux didn't even make the list so I mean it, I think it just speaks to the level of like having to understand the motives of our villains and what drives them to do the things that they. They do is so essential for us as the viewer. There's just a, yeah. a deep-seated insecurity and neurosis about Tetsuo that probably for me, there are things that are out of control and both in his control that he is honestly the most sympathetic uh, villain on this list for me. Yeah, I mean, there's. I'm trying, I heard this expression this week where someone was talking about like villains are in in such a way where they're saying like we find. In, in others, what we love and what we hate, and that's what engages us in such a way. And then that's, I think that's, you know, that mirroring is so powerful. Yeah. Can't wait yeah. to get to my number two. <laughs> but uh, that's my number three, Tetsuoshima from Akira. All right, let's move on to number two and start with Nick. Well, <laughs> you have to turn it upside down. My number two is a character named Reverend Harry Powell from the 1955 movie uh, The Night of the Hunter. It was uh, Charles Lawton's only directorial movie. Uh, this movie, I gotta say, because I feel like maybe some of our audience has never heard of this, but it is honestly one of the greatest films of all time. Hmm. 
it is about a a man who is in jail uh <clears throat> so i guess i should back up really quick <laughs> there's there's a couple uh man and woman they have two children the man goes to jail for a pretty from what i remember petty crime i guess not he's not a murderer or anything like that but when he goes to jail he meets another person his cellmate who is reverend harry powell and he kind of tells him about this money that's buried in his backyard hmm. so when reverend Harry Powell gets out of jail, played by Robert Mitchum. He takes it upon himself to go infiltrate this family's kind of uh, homestead, so to speak. And this is a movie that's one of the most terrifying movies ever made, in my opinion. Huh. Because of the fact that it it's like a children's film. Because the two children of the woman, uh, the, the matriarch, uh, are kind of the main characters. It's uh, one little boy, one little girl. And when Reverend Harry Powell shows up in this world uh, and in their town and eventually in their home because he kind of starts to court their mother, Mm -hmm. it becomes this really uncomfortable and disturbing tale of, like, adult authority, you know, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, but the the way a child can see through an adult's bullshit more than uh, many adults can, you know, like, just because he wears... Boy, even in in like like Cinderella or something like that, you talk about like seeing through an adult's bullshit yeah. of of you don't see this, but boy, I experience this every day, yeah. and you are not seeing what I am. Yeah, wow. and it, and it goes through that because of the fact that it's like when we're children, we have to be taught these things. Like we have to be taught that you should respect law enforcement, or you should, you know, you like this is what a priest is, or whatever. So when Reverend Harry Powell shows up, all the adults of this community accept his cloth as fact. Instead of the children who, you know, are still impressionable, can see some of his uncomfortable, uh, you know, mannerisms and whatnot and his misogynistic ways and can really see that this is, you know, has ulterior motives. And this is just the first 10 minutes. I mean, (laughs) this is like, you know, this is the setup of the movie. And I'm even going to, because it's a 1955 movie, so I'm going to spoil it as, as far as like what happens by the midway point, not what happens at the end or anything like that. But it, it turns out that only the children know where this money is, actually. So, of course, he has to kind of control the children, mm. not just the, the adults. But just to get to uh, – more to the point of, like, just to get to what he needs, this is a movie from 1955, and it's told from the children's point of view to the point where it feels like a children's film. Um, halfway through the movie, he murders the mother and slits her throat and throws her, and throws her into a river. In, 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 off screen? Um, or... He doesn't slit her throat on screen, but you see her floating in the river with a slit throat. Wow! Yeah, like it's it, it it's pretty. I For nineteen fifty five, that is like correct. A like thing. I was gonna say it's it, it's not like the most shocking thing you could think of, but you would not be expecting what this movie does. Like, like when you when you remember that they had no, to I'm use. I'm not saying it's like Saul levels. I, of, I, I got you, but when detail. you remember in Alfred Hitchcock, who was probably one of the most prevalent directors of his time had to shoot his film in black and white because he could not show red blood right. in the shower. No. Woo! I'll say this. Everything you need to know about this movie is shot in black and white. Yeah. And um, nobody said exactly what happened to the mother, but you know what happened to the mother because you can see it. So that's how detailed it is for a movie from 1955 as to what happened to her. Uh, but then this movie becomes this 
uncomfortable chase between this reverend, I'm uh, doing air quotes for <laughs> our listeners at home, uh, chasing these two children because eventually they kind of flee home and whatnot. And it becomes this fucked up kind of inverse fairy tale. I mean, there's there, from seemingly, I would say, there's no happy ending for these children, and and because adults can always pretty much win in these situations. And I'm not going to say that that is the ending or that isn't, but throughout the whole thing, it's like it's you would take. Uh, I would say it's a child's worst nightmare come to life hmm. because when when the adults turn against you as a child, you feel like there's there, there's nothing left. You know hmm. that that's the worst thing. And of course, this person, Reverend. Harry Powell, uh, who's really a self-anointed reverend. He's not like a real reverend. He oh. just yes, he's a he's a he's one who I, I won't say he's a fake reverend. Like it's not just the fact that he dresses up like one, but he I I think he genuinely believes that he does have some kind of weird. Uh, uh, I don't know lying to the to a higher power because he goes on a lot of uh, monologues about his. Uh, it's just that that whole idea though about the accreditation of someone who I mean like we wouldn't do that with doctors or anyone else but like you can go people. online and become a priest exactly yeah. no I think <laughs> no. I, I think they didn't I have the internet people. back yeah. then yeah. <laughs> right it's within minutes no yeah. but that's that's exactly what happens when he shows up everybody huh. just take all the adults take it at face value the children don't and it, it's funny because this is obviously a very much different time than we are now but what you're talking about i keep coming back to the line from the film the one best picture last year spotlight in a much different film yes but the the line of uh a child saying oh i was raped by this priest and the the parents keep saying well we need to put cookies out for him because he is this priest who wants to wants to to help you and and we don't have much money and you don't have much guidance from a father so that so here this is like like this sort of Belief? Fuck. What? This he said. Fuck. Oh. Said, oh. <laughs> this, <laughs> this sort of belief in a a person who is yeah. a speaker for God, yep. and 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 just saying that they are from that. Certain people just just letting that be. That's, yes, oh, it's, man. it's serious a, level of dissonance. That I mean, that, that's that's it right there. Just like which one of these things am I going to hold on to longer? Yeah. I mean, and that's just. It's it's an uncomfortable abuse of power on many different levels. It's not just as him being a priest; it's that, and it's also him being their stepfather eventually, mm-hmm. and and it's also as him just being an adult. I mean, I think when you're a child, you you can't really conceive the the idea that adults become this multifaceted being where mm-hmm. uh, self motivation becomes a more preservation thing. Whereas, like when you're a child, you can be selfish and you can be, but it's really for things I would say that aren't quite, uh, shall we say. Uh, disturbing and uh, amoralistic, so to speak. And there is a scene in here um, where Robert Mitchum playing uh, Reverend Harry Powell, who's besides his performance is great. I mean, his baritone voice, his weird, uncanny valley of like pretending hmm. to be a happy-go-lucky person is so creepy. <laughs> where he comes home, I can't remember what he was doing, but he comes home uh, to the children's home and his new wife's home and whatever. And he just whistles this tune, and as he's coming down the uh, the the yard, so to speak, all through the through the little path that's made out by the stones or whatever, and the children are watching from the window because they're fucking terrified that that you know like he's back, and, so, and it's just that scene alone. And there's a scene in which uh, the little girl is in the basement trying to hide something that I won't say what she's trying to mm-hmm. hide, but he's cluing in on what, and the tension between whether she can hide it 
before he comes down into the basement because he takes his time and he's one of those kind of villains who like tries to who's not like a you know a force of nature but just kind of like oh I can do whatever I want type thing and just there's so many set pieces that are fantastic and Robert Mitchum completely owns this role of uh, Reverend Harry Powell he's also as far as maybe the most iconic thing about the movie is, is about him he's he's a character who has the words love and hate tattooed on his knuckles which oh. was also uh, shall we say homage to in um, what we talked about earlier, uh, do the right thing, mm-hmm. uh, where the guy had the kind of brass, was it brass knuckles or I don't know, but the bling, but mm-hmm. had love and hate anyway. But that's whenever you see somebody in a movie that has their knuckles uh, tattooed, love and hate, it's going back to that movie because mm, he he tells that story over and over about how love and hate like to fight each other, but only one wins out and. It's one of the creepiest movies ever made, and it's all because of Robert Mitchum's portrayal of Reverend uh, Harry Powell in The Night of the Hunter. Wow. That is a film that was not necessarily on my radar, but it, it, it no, actually no, is now. That's yeah. on my list now. We, we will watch it if some, I have it, so we will watch it. Is it a Criterion Collection film? It is. Okay. <laughs> I is The way you talked about it, I had a feeling... I'm predictable. So, um, for my number two, the way I talked about uh, a, a villain captivating the audience and, and getting them to feel with 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 that, and getting them to change their perspective, and and the way Toussaint was just talking about uh, his his uh, villain with his number three, um, it, th- this is something for me that I feel like not in a, it'll be like controversial to anybody, but. This is a, a, a villain that is not a villain in the film. He is the protagonist, but boy, he is the fucking villain of this film. Hmm. And that is the narrator in the film Fight Club, oh. who is my number two. Oh. And boy, he is an awful person for, for the most part. Yeah. I thought you were going to say something else. Okay. you're going to see Iron Man Iron Man 2 because he's the villain of that film. I no, would, have, I would have never said that. I love Iron Man. I, uh, let's not be the villain silly, of Iron Man, too. That, that's fine. Uh, I love Iron Man. It would never happen. So anyways, uh, we've had a full episode about this recently, so I'm not going to, to hark on it too much. But if you really look at the, the way that Edward Norton plays the character of the narrator in the film Fight Club, he is ultimately the person who is creating all of this terror throughout but he is a very interesting character as he has the audience in the palm of his hand throughout the entire film as he is making you feel like he is a, a character who you should have sympathy for throughout because, oh, I have this this person who I've created and this character of Tyler Durden who is taking over my entire life. But in the real world that that we are living in, in the, in the world of Fight Club, it is this person of of the narrator who is Edward Norton's character who if if this was a character in in, in real life this is a terrorist who is who's going throughout uh, nah man when you're young you think that Tyler Durden's just cool but then when you get older you realize he was right it's that same joker <sighs> mentality fuck but for for forget about Tyler Durden for a second let's just focus on the character of Edward Norton's character Jack the narrator whatever you want to call mm-hmm. him he is this character who Rufus. is who is who is playing the audience like a like a like, like a goddamn fiddle? I was gonna say he's playing the audience throughout the entire film. As not only is he trying to show the entire world that he is not this character of Tyler Durden, but he is showing the audience that he is not this character 
that is creating all this harm on the world. He's just this this guy who's just miserable and he's depressed and he's he can't sleep at night and he totally isn't this guy who goes out and creates all of this murderous havoc, including blowing up all these buildings at the end of the film, which is just this this act that just kind of gets thrown to the wayside gets it's the very end of the film, but there are like seven buildings that get blown up at the end of this film. How is that? You did not vac- evacuate everybody out of this. No. Film. You did not do that. No. That and happen. it's just kind of thrown to the side, which is a pre-9-11 thing. That would that never happen. Nope. That would never nope. happen. <laughs> but but you have you have this character who creates sympathy and is your protagonist throughout the entire film and creates this weird bizarre sort of separation Stockholm. between his um, his alter personality and this character you see on screen but at the end of the day it is this one person who is going throughout and is creating all of this problem throughout the 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 world throughout the the story that we see but also throughout the story that exists outside of the story that we are actually seeing because he's setting up all these different fight clubs Project Mayhem's in the entire world. Like we have the second coming of 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 Hitler, of of someone who is creating this 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 mindset that it is okay to to be this kind of person. And and the scary thing He's is like that a- there there is a group of people who believe that the character of the narrator is the protagonist of of this film, and it is it is like shockingly just mind blowing to me that that that. This is a great film, and, and I love Fight Club. Like, mm-hmm. It is a top five film for me all yeah. time. But at the same time, this character of the narrator is able to just pull out sympathy from the audience and turn everyone on its head, much like a great villain, which is Kevin Spacey's character in The Usual Suspect, is able to to turn around everybody's feelings on him throughout and then show you the whole story at the end, but he's already laid the groundwork mm-hmm. for you to be on his side throughout, and it is something. Like, the the narrator, and specifically Tyler Durden as a villain, is like, he's basically like Jim Jones if he did CrossFit. If he just, like, got really fucking jacked, and then he, like, made everybody, like, go to a club with him and, like, fight each other. And he's like, oh, yeah, by the way, we're going to wear all these jumpsuits. Like, do you have enough funeral money? Is like, are you going to be able to, like, burn your, your, your fingerprints off with lies so that people can identify of your body? And are you going to just, like, pretty much project yourself as being part of this homogenous, like, hive mind until somebody I, dies and then, you, then they have a name in death? I love that we now have the combination of Tyler Durden CrossFit. So there that is. Yeah. It's there for you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I don't know. I'm maybe I'm totally off base with, with this selection, but looking back on it and you and usually watching, are, but thanks. Fuck off. That, th- thanks for that, Nick. The joke. Watching Fight Club as many times as I have and, and, and seeing kind of what what kind of person that is and the way that that portrays to the audience as, as a character is trying to gain sympathy for a protagonist throughout and then we see him watching these buildings just collapse at the end of the film and, and, and knowing that that is the true evil villain of this film. And you know what's even scarier than that? That there are people who watch this film multiple times and they never clue into that. They're always anchored in the same initial impression of Tyler Durden being this romantic hero that is that is worthy of being idolized. I think like that itself is, is a... But he's Brad Pitt. Well, yeah, it's, it's Brad Pitt, but it also speaks Why to... Why don't the... you idolize him? He, he literally <laughs> just laid it out. <laughs> I 
I I, I got to tell was, you, that's that's just well, that's I mean, just gotta, the way I mean, it is. On on, if you look at it on paper and look at this film for what it is, that that's just what it is. It's just right there for you. Yeah. yeah. The the um the. I, the the episode that you guys I, I love the theory I think that you brought up in your Fight Club episode which was just the idea that maybe Marla could be also included in the I'm like oh now I have to go back and think about this right I love <laughs> and that not idea. that it's real yeah but it's something that in in this reality that the Fight Club has brought up it not? it's something yeah. that is yeah. absolutely a possibility yeah. The, uh, but I guess you know it, it is it does you know what is it that is attractive about this entanglement uh which is that there is some itch that is going unscratched in this kind of moment in capitalism amongst us right and so and i I, it's one of my favorite expressions which is we know every bar of our gilded cage and Mm. that uh that we understand that in this dance in this participation in what we do we are giving up our creativity we are great but at least i have a fridge that's stocked and i can get stuff from ikea like this you know kind of what was mentioned there but we are giving up something that is you know if if, if we're going to go back a long i mean we're thinking you know going back this whole experience of modernity of what we were we were as a species we were probably just off the farm 200 years ago we were working in the land we were getting sunlight so this whole experience of being um in this kind of uh uh, modern space where we are artificial lights artificial temperatures all that stuff we're being robbed of something that has just happened recently so how we have now acted in 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 reaction to that i don't think we clearly have gotten our minds around and i think this movie is kind of yeah fuck uh, the gilded age fuck railroads Wow. Compressing time so that we could have an industry wow. for that. Yeah. yeah, you know. Yeah. Wow. I I don't know if you want to. Okay. <laughs> we'll just we'll just leave that right there. Uh, okay. That note. <laughs> Please continue, Brian. Uh, where was I? Uh, so, oh, so I, I might as well. If we're if we're uh, continuing with uh, critiques of capitalism, uh, why not go with Gordon Gecko? All right, from uh, Wall Street. He was someone who was so, going to be on my yeah. uh, like he was one of my people who was on my expanded list because yeah. you you have this character that just doesn't give a fuck. No. Like he is yeah. just there to collect no. the money. So to be clear, is that your number two or is that somebody else? I know. I, I'm no. He's my number oh, two. No, I was so, just curious. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, in no particular His, order. So oh, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. I'm. I, I was just saying. I'm, I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. But, yeah. but please go on. Um, uh, for so many reasons, I, I really think that the uh, the greed of is good speech is rhetorically probably one of the most um, horrific yet intriguing uh, speeches. I think in and it was actually somewhat um, kind of adapted. And I'm drawing a blank on which hedge fund hustler you know from the 80s that it was actually came from. Probably somebody who was associated with Ayn Rand. Oh, a, a disciple of some sorts. Yeah, a, a, absolutely. No, Alan you know, Greenspan, no, somebody like that. Um, yeah, and, and so uh, th- this um, because he he's uh, uh, th- that the fact that his seduction of uh, of the um, Charlie Sheen character, and it, in fact, I, I would say this. I remember in our last episode. I was listening to it. I'm like, oh, well, that was this is what I should have said when we're going like, you know, why, why do you like movies and all this stuff? When I was a sophomore in high school, there was a scene uh, in from Wall Street, and this was like, I didn't know you could do that in movies. It was the scene where 
uh, Charlie Sheen confronts Gordon Gecko. He's like, why did you do this? Why did you do this? And there's all this stuff. In the background, there was a window washer. And he was I'm like, and our, my teacher in sophomore year, she said, do you see what's going on here? I was like, no, oh, what's going on? I was like, well, his, he has a new vision. He's, we're seeing really what is the soul of what's going on here. I'm like, symbolism. This is what's going on here. So I've always have a special place in my heart for Wall Street because that has been instrumental in my way in which I can appreciate film on levels beyond the actual story and plot. That yeah. there is a craft that the director has put parts in this that if you're clever enough you will be enriched beyond anything that you could ever know so anyway, when oliver stone didn't just make shit movies uh, agreed, agreed i mean come, i mean just the, well i don't want to get into so but yes but I, I would say um definitely uh gordon gecko on so many fronts uh was he um so attractive as a, as a villain uh, uh yeah definitely Another person, we just talk about financial no. films, um, someone who I was on my list. Uh, I was waiting. I thought that was going to be on your top six, what you're about to say. You guys have a mind melt. Go uh, for it. Is, is that Jordan uh, Belfort, Jordan Belfort yeah, and I, Wolf of Wall Street? I thought you were going to uh, say yeah. that. Who, who um, is just one of the worst people you could ever remember. But uh, again, he meets my criteria yeah. of, of, of being someone who just brings the audience in. And, and Earlier when you were talking about the Fight Club thing and mm -hmm. you were saying how like where was was the fight club? Or was uh, it was probably when I was talking about Dalton Russell. Yes, I think when you were man. saying like yes, when when like someone can be as charming but yet bring you into their bad worldview. It's funny because when um, I saw this film for the first time, which is we're talking about Wolf of Wall Street right now. And this is a film that already in and this is only like four years old or something like that, mm -hmm. three and a half, whatever. His has made it into my top twenty twenty five of all time. Um, when I walked out of this viewing it for the first time with my wife, Emily, she, she said this line to me and it, it is stuck with me and, and I am completely agree. She's like, we're doing something wrong with our lives because we could be, we could be living like this person right now. <laughs> Your who, wife is awesome. Well, yeah. <laughs> Your wife is so awesome. <laughs> she, she's like, you know, this is somebody and, and this is just how the world is right now who has had the smarts to find a way to to make their way into this life of of being able to do what you would like. But it goes back to the idea of choice of being a villain, which is do I do I then make the transition to say I was once a sheep, I will now be the wolf, right? <laughs> I mean, and I think that's what is the that's what most people will not make. And, and, and that's that, the, the thing, like you have to be, you have to lack that moral compass mm -hmm. of, of saying I'm going to fuck so many people over mm -hmm. in my life if I do this. And who gives a shit? Mm -hmm. Like that's what Jordan Belfort is. I mean, you even have that amazing scene in, in where he's talking to the guy on speakerphone, where he's pretty much stealing his entire life's work, and he's just standing in the background, flipping the bird at there, like showing off to the other people who he's, he's trying to teach this method to. And yeah, he is just like, like if you want to talk about a financial person who is just a complete, just, just mere image of Hitler, it would be Jordan Belfort in the movie, the Wolf of wall street, because he is just able to sell everybody on what he is selling. And they are fucking buying it. Is his evil though. One that is pathological. I mean, like this guy has damaged amygdala. He's a psychopath. Or is it because he has been given permission by the system of capitalism to operate in such a way? I, that that's an interesting thing that you would have to have a inner struggle it with because is because capitalism is the highest ideal and selfishness is the greatest virtue of man. 
Well, the beginning of the movie tries. The, the ghost of Ayn Rand. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes she, sometimes she possesses me, she's possessing I mean, me from, from time to time and makes really horrible remarks about Native Americans it, it, and women. It's <laughs> funny because Jordan Belfort, at the beginning, like the first three minutes of the film, is actually a pretty, say, a pretty normal person. The beginning of the person. movie yeah. kind of suggests that he wasn't always that way. And, and then but... he runs into Matthew McConaughey and his chest bumping and whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he mm-hmm. told him... <laughs> It's really too bad because that's the film he should have won Best Actor for. But it's a Fugazi. Matthew McConaughey. No, Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, I was like, really? Oh no, that one. I mean, it's a good scene. No, but... Wolf of Wall Street okay. is what he should have won his Oscar for, I not Re- Revenant. But yeah. whatever. I did see though. Just as a side note, there was a, a commercial. I think if, like FX was going to run Wolf of Wall Street like on cable. I'm like, I don't even want to watch that. How are they going to get around this whole language thing? Like, what was it like per minute? How many f bombs were dropped in this movie? It's, a high it's like, it, it's like the, it, it, broke... ver- it like rivals yeah. uh, Lebowski. I mean, it's it's yeah. amazing. Rebels yeah. Casino. Yeah. I was going to say, Rivals, the other two Martin Scorsese movies, Goodfellas and Casino, that have kind of already... Over broke. 300 yep. uses of the F word. Not say, to I... mention all of the drugs that are taken throughout and, and whatnot. Jonah Hill's dick. And... <laughs> yeah. What a great scene that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but Jordan Belfort in that film is a certain kind of villain that if, if you want Certainly wanted... a spawn, as far as uh, cinema goes, of Gordon Gecko. Yes, Mm-hmm. But it takes it to a, a different sort of uh, a, a different way, where he is just willing to do whatever it takes to fuck over the system and and take what he wants and take excess and and I mean that scene where he's where he's in um in the in the mirage following the 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 ridiculous plane scene when he's going to his his bachelor party, like it, it's a, such a minor scene in, in the grand scheme of things. But when he just walks throughout the scene and all the other People are passed out, including Jonah Hill and John Bernthal and whatever. Everyone just passed out, taking enormous amounts of coke and, and drunk the entire night, whatever. And he just walks to the window and just randomly goes out of his way to grab some girl's boob just because, like, what the fuck is happening? Like, yeah. who who is this person? Like, there's no reason for him to do that. He has no need That's... to do that. He just, just, just... I don't give pure, a fuck. Pure id, you know, at that point. <laughs> the, but what's interesting, though, is is the foil of what you're talking about. So you had mentioned before that you had on your list, your number two was the narrator from Fight yeah. Club, who is the absolute anarchist to the system, right? Mm-hmm. And But then here we have Jordan, who is now the absolute guts of that. So it's yep. interesting, those two things sparking against each other. Yeah. 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 But yeah, they would not like each other. <laughs> no, they're jo- not. Jordan, Jordan literally Buff. the the finale of Fight Club is them destroying the credit. Yep, uh, yeah. But, dead there, and all that. There, there you are. Two yeah. different ideologies. But yeah, Jordan Belfort was not on my list. But Gordon Gecko is a is a great choice. I have to admit, I've never never actually seen Wall Street. Oh, I know it's one of those. It's Delish. one of my biggest yes. blind spots. I've seen the Greed is Good speech, and I've seen mm. a few other uh, scenes isolated from the movie itself. But it's one of those things where, like, I the I, trope I, of the window washer is one that was also used in the Matrix when Neo was trying to make the decision. That's right. You have yes, a problem uh, with authority, Mister yes. Anderson. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Forgot so. about that. Yeah. yeah, I did a whole uh, thing on on financial villains. Uh, it was Dead. actually my senior capstone key, uh, capstone project. Oh, yeah. oh, let's go. 
And it, it included Gordon Gecko, Jordan Belfort, and also Giovanni Ribisi's character from the movie Boiler Room. Yeah, yeah. How have you yeah. ever seen that? Yes. But that is quite the entertaining film, and actually a great role from Vin Diesel as a stockbroker, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, yeah, but... Was uh, Ben Affleck was in that? Yes, was he, he was. Yeah, he was. Oh. Yes, he and was. And they were watching the scene from, from Wall, Street Wall Street to kind of get yeah. Their, their, <laughs> yeah. their ethos yeah, right for it, right? It, so yeah. that was a fun project to do, but... Um, all those, all those financial films, they're all pretty much the same people, yeah. Through. <laughs> yeah. but yeah, great choice, uh, as, uh, Michael Douglas is Gordon Gecko. Moving after to not with his number two. Yeah. My final project was on Marshall McLuhan. Anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, uh, not quite as interesting. Go, go, please. Okay. Anyway, okay. <laughs> my second, uh, my, my, my number two is, and, and you mentioned him before offhandedly, uh, Alex, uh, Kaiser Soze from The Usual Suspects. Oh, okay. Um, this one kind of crept up on me because I knew that I was going to include a Kevin Spacey role just because, like, he's, in my mind, one of the, 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 one of the better character actors of, of, of recent time, especially with his role as Frank Underwood in, in House of Cards. But I feel like he would not have even, like, assumed into that type without this how about his horrifying role in the movie seven yes i mean i mean it's it's literally (laughs) he's in the the, movie for like 12 minutes i know that's his 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 character type is that he's detective detective. (laughs) he's he's this uh this machiavellian uh villain that literally is is always like five steps ahead of everyone i feel like that that really comes to bear in um in the usual suspects, like most of all, because he's playing like this, this supposed crippled man, but he turns out he's actually this notorious, like boogeyman among high stakes criminals, like Kaiser Soze, the guy who, whose family was murdered. And then he just like went on a murdering spree himself. And is like, it's, it's, it's so, I like the myth of, of Kaiser Soze. And I feel like it's, it's really still sort of, uh, risen of even like after the fact of this movie coming out, like recently my mom, finally got into watching Netflix because she likes watching films and I actually turned on The Usual Suspects for her and she watched it twice and she came down excited just like telling me about like oh my god like, can you believe that guys are so famous I don't know so I was like it was the most adorable thing I have ever seen <laughs> and I did not mean to, that, to be to be uh, um, denigrating or anything like that it was just like to see somebody who can watch it for the first time and enjoy it on that level with that intensity I'm just like man I wish I could do that or even when we um, like years ago when we went to go see American Sniper, and they made an offhand. Uh, uh, that, was, that, that was fabulous. Alex and I were sitting one next to one another, and it was like a two-parter where it was just like one of the characters uh, was uh, a helicopter pilot over a a a town that was caught in a dust storm. It was like it's like trying to find him. It's like trying to find fucking Kaiser Soze, uh, and we were and we were and we, uh, and we were laughing. Because it's like, oh my there, god! There, there's like, a second part to this. There's a, well, yeah, there's somebody. A sec- there's a second part to this, and like, like Alex and I are laughing, and then like, there's this this teenager and his friends like behind us, and she's like, "Who's Kaiser Soze?" And we just burst <laughs> yeah. into laughter even harder because it's it still worked even years after the fact. <laughs> they don't know who he is. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it was it was quite inter- it was the most entertaining part of that Jesus, film, with the exception of maybe the fake baby. Oh my god! <laughs> don't remind me of that. Um, but yeah, like, like Kaiser Soze is is my number two on this list. I got to say really quick of the yeah. weird story, but I watched The Usual Suspects uh, past the point of return of when I would have been most, uh, shall we say, shocked by that twist. Not because I actually knew the twist as far as I didn't hear about the ending of the movie or whatever, but because I watched the movie Scary Movie 
Oh, before geez. before I watched That's such a postmodern kind yeah, of twist. Yeah, it's just right? one of those weird, yeah. you know, not weird things. I was like 10 years old, so why wouldn't I yeah. watch a scary movie? Right. Uh, why but, wouldn't you watch Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back? Right. But because I had seen that movie, which ends with the literal parody. In fact, that's actually the final scene of Scary Movie 2 is a very Kaiser Sose-like moment. <laughs> so it was about 30 minutes into The Usual Suspect when I actually eventually, probably like a year after I watched Scary Movie, that I was watching it and I was like, oh god, this is the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but wouldn't you and, say, though, that that, that uh, The Usual Suspects began a whole... Um, it, like, it, it became so common in so many movies afterwards to have that final twist. And yeah. Every, I mean, it became like that. For it was sure. like, oh, okay, here we go. Like, you, you knew it was going to come. Da, sure. da, da, no, da, yeah. da. <laughs> For sure. No, as far as like the, the, the reaction to that movie yep. and the way that that was structured, it certainly kind of sparked a revolution as to like all of these kind of cheap I'm almost thrillers. afraid to watch it more recently. It's been on Netflix. It's been on my queue for a while. And I'm like, oh, I'm afraid it won't hold up. Yeah. Like, that's the problem. I'm Spoiler, so it does. Every, okay. yeah, right. every time I see a Bad Hat Harry film, I'm <laughs> like, oh, man, I need to watch The Usual Suspects right. again. Yeah. And yet here is that exact scene where they walk to the lineup, and I'm like, fuck, that's The Usual Suspects. Yeah. I need to watch that's it That's the best scene mm-hmm. of the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I don't mean yeah. that as an insult, but like that actually is like well, that, that would be the reason I would that, that's watch good it. That, I mean, that's good that Brian Singer uses that for his production company now. Yep. <laughs> Anyway, that was just a random story. Mm-hmm. That's good. So what's your number two, Nick? I think uh, you're on your number, number one. one. Number one, that's right. Come on, Tucson. Okay. My number one <laughs> is from a documentary. Oh, wow. That, that came out uh, in 2013 called The Imposter. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It, it, it almost feels like a cheat because it is a documentary, so it has that real-life, shall we say, uh, trauma to it. But it's the character, or shall we say, person <laughs> of Frederick Bourdin, who, uh, for those who haven't seen the movie or who aren't familiar with the true crime case, there was... Uh, an abduction that happened in the state of, I want to say Texas, it was a, some southern state in America, where uh, a 11-year-old boy, I want to say, was sadly just, you know, one day just didn't come home from school or something like that. Fast forward th- three to four years later, and that family gets a call from the state of Spain. Uh, not the state, the country of Spain. <laughs> the state of Spain. <laughs> the state, the state, state of, of Spain. Spain. <laughs> Oh boy! What are what is fucking America coming to? The now? country of Spain, <laughs> from the government officials saying that they have found that child, that that the person they have found has is claiming to be uh, the person that this family lost uh, four years, so to speak, uh, after the fact. We know from the very beginning when we're watching this movie that that is not the case because we know who's telling the story and who's telling the story is the titular imposter. It is a 20-something-year-old man who is somehow able to convince this family that he is this 15-year-old kid and he's this uh, Frenchman, uh, Frederick Bourdain, as I've said before. And the movie interviews everybody uh, involved with this situation, uh, the, the mother of the kid, the aunt of the kid, everybody. Uh, but the movie is told from his point of view, the imposter. Now, hold on, let's just, because I, I, I've never seen this, yeah. so... Um, 
when when this film is released, does the family know he's the imposter? Oh yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, this okay. movie documents the entire okay. saga. Of... I, w- I was horrified there for no, a no. second. <laughs> this isn't like exposing. Hey, did you know this guy's a fucking imposter? <laughs> no. no, 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 no. I, I was, I was just because no, they're very... being interviewed by this. I was, I was just being, being... right, right, right. I... Stupid people live no, in America, no. and I was scared that they were still no, in no, on no. this. Because they're interviewed, and they okay. tell about their time of okay. how they came to believe Good. that this guy was. Uh, I was their... really scared there for a moment, but well, please but go on. That's the thing. <laughs> okay, so you have a grown man, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, able to convince a family that he is their child. And here's the thing, and the reason why he's my number one villain mm-hmm. is because... At the by the end of the movie, you, at least from my own personal experience, I'm 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 under his spell. He's oh he's the one who's able okay. to tell the story, and because he was the one who told the story, and because nobody else got to interrupt his narrative, I cannot watch this movie in any other way. I cannot think about the case that happened here. Um, what the fuck are you doing? Jesus? I'm sorry. As soon as you said... I was going to say, two, yeah, no, but like, what been dancing like, for like I'm 30 seconds. I'm, I'm sorry. As, okay. soon as, as soon as you said he had you under your spell, I thought of the song from Drive. That's great. Okay. <laughs> so, okay, Nick, <laughs> please continue on because we would like to finish this episode at some point tonight. But by the end of this movie, uh, I have to admit that I can never watch this movie untainted. He is a sociopath. He is the narrator and he dictates what I was able to uh, surmise from this case. Mm-hmm. And by the end of it, I won't say that I'm on his side or anything like that because I genuinely think that he is the, 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 the perpetrator and he is the villain of this movie. He's an asshole. He is. But he is able to plant a seed in the audience's mind that is too far for me to dig it back up and remove it. And it is so scary for me to watch this movie because it is. It is so creepy. And I will say it's all the way up until the last, and I think this is on purpose and and so masterfully done, but it's not until the last five minutes that the movie tips his hand as to how much he's controlling this narrative and to how much he is bending the truth to what he wants you to believe the same way he wants the family to believe. And it is so creepy. It is so, and it's so true. It happened, uh, and it is so wrong and repulsive uh, that by the end of it, I I, I feel so ashamed. <laughs> Seriously, the, of, no, I... of, of what I think about what happened because there's never not going to be one percent of me that doesn't somewhat believe what he has to sell. You know that he's lying. Yes, and yet. Oh, God, and it, it is so creepy. Yes. Like, wow. like, like, like he is a like no doubt, and like, like large, like scale cult leader. Then. Yes, he yeah. is. A, he is a sociopath that is able to uh, manipulate the audience, and it, it is so creepy. And and I'm not even spoiling what happens in the last half hour or anything like that because the no. whole him being the imposter is is the main plot of the movie. Mm-hmm. That that's what happens, and and there are a lot of things to talk about that, and I'm not going to. But like as to what they were thinking when they kind of picked him up to when they brought him back to the states and still believed that he was their child that he clearly wasn't, mm-hmm. and 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 that's what's most disturbing of all is that. By the end of the movie, uh, I don't know that I would like the movie if he wasn't telling the story because he's that 
fucking, I won't say charming, but engaging. And he knows what to say, when to say. And the movie itself is edited in a way that most document documentaries are not. Uh, it, it has uh, very cinematic recreations of scenes, like where actors are actually playing. Oh, the, wow. Uh, okay. it, like the, the real people are being interviewed. So it's not like it's like being fake about whatever, but it, it just totally sucks you into the, the glossy veneer of this lie that it is so fucked up and it's all because of him. So you had mentioned before that you, I mean, we were talking about, I think Sopranos, I think during the episode or prior, us recording and that, that was always like the thing about like why was Tony always yes. uh, in therapy yep. and one of the theories was like that he was sharpening his blade as a psychopath that, which is I'm trying to get better and that's what we learn about genuine sociopath psychopaths is that they they understand how do I read people and how can I find because like we have compulsions to not we want to be good. I'm not, I want to be truthful. Like, yeah. You know, it, it, but whereas they like, no, if I know that this is a, uh, a soft tissue of, of a wedge that I can use against this person. So th- what you're describing is so fascinating. That it is to watch that process unfold. Oh, I can't wait to watch this. It is so yeah. creepy. It's on Netflix. Yeah. Instant for oh, everybody. is it? Really? Oh, oh, yeah. oh, it's all over now. I was going to say, God. I also have the DVD in case uh, oh. the, the two people here want to watch it with me. Cause I would love to, but it's on Netflix. <laughs> Netflix instant, and I gotta say that by the last half hour, uh, his persona, the way he tells the story, is just so good that you would think that he is an actor himself, and, mm. and of course, that's what you realize, that that's why he's able to do what he's able to do. And I'll say this, just to tease people into trying, not trying, but to watch it, if they haven't already been teased enough, but this is not the first time he's done it. Like, oh. he, he's a he's a sociopath by the definition and the lengths he will go for what I would consider and I think any sane person no real reason like no gain from whatever uh that's what makes him the creepiest villain I've seen in a movie. When I said cult leader, I'm, I'm thinking directly of a, of a film that we saw at Sundance called Holy Hell, which is a documentary. Yeah. And, and this is a much different different story. It's a little different, yeah. But it's still a, a person who is convincing people that he is basically a descendant of Christ. Is it, yeah. And, 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 and it, it, it's something, and I, I really don't think this is revealing that much because it's a documentary of current people who have made this documentary. Yeah. But we find out that that these people we followed who were with this person, like they spent their life following him as a disciple for over twenty years. They have they have left him and they have made this entire story and, and we end the film seeing that he has like these hundreds of new disciples that are still following him. Like that that someone could have that effect on people that they can move from one to an, another and still just do the exact same story over and over again and and get the same result is is just horrifying. I will say two more things before I move it on, which mm-hmm. is that a uh, it, it's very much like that because this character or person is mm-hmm. very much like that character in the sense that they prey on the emotional trauma that they can expose and and really fester into and they know that because this person is hurt in this way they'll believe anything and mm-hmm. they'll, they'll do that so that's very spot on yeah. the other thing I will say is that this movie is like holy hell if two things were different which is that A you were clued in onto the crime for the very first moment okay. so it's a different kind of story yeah and B, if the people involved who were duped never once fully admit. Oh. 
as to as to what as as to what possibly could have driven them to be uh, shall we say manipulated? I'm dying right yes, now. Yes, right? it, it is one of the creepiest <laughs> things you'll ever see, and it makes you question, which is exactly what this villain wants, exactly uh, why this happened, and it it's fucking disturbing. So that's why <laughs> that's why my my number one this is might uh, be being streamed tonight when I get home. Yeah, <laughs> like, is yeah. Frederick Borden from The Imposter. I was gonna say I'm. This is pretty much shooting to the top of my list because yeah, I'm it's, so it, it's horrible but I it's like a car crash man oh, I, yeah. I, I need to see it now yeah, so. oh boy my number one after all of my choices that I tried to, to to be more out of the box with this is the most obvious choice for top villains so whatever it's Darth Vader is number one <laughs> okay. because you know what it's Darth Vader he's fucking awesome it's James it's, Earl Jones's voice it's it's James Earl Jones it's the whole sort of amazing story of, of Darth Vader the guy David Prowse who who is the body of Darth Vader who believed he was the voice of Darth Vader all the way up till the first screening of A New Hope when he's like that's not me that's a black man <laughs> um, it's 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 just though the whole incredible story of, of this character from a film level and also from a story level mm-hmm. is as he is able to manipulate um, smaller beings or, or people who are able to uh, have a, a less powerful mind than him throughout whether they be on the on the side of good or the side of bad and whether they be um, his his um, children with Luke and Leia or, or anybody, like he is able to manipulate pretty much any situation he is in using the Force and 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 this whole 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 narrative. Not to mention that he is without a doubt the most iconic and cool character from Star Wars, which is probably the greatest franchise of all time. Yeah. Um. It, Everybody wants to see Darth Vader and, and hear that iconic voice and see his red lightsaber fight. And, and and I feel like this is the only reason why anybody wants to see the film Star Wars Rogue One. Is I want to see... see the Star Wars Rogue One just because it looks fucking cool. Okay. Yeah. But you, you are not... But you know what? The internet's going to break once the, the new With trailers... Darth Vader have, yeah, when the trailer has Darth Vader in it. How, 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 about, how about the I mean, reshoots from that film, which no doubt are going to include more Darth Vader, <laughs> because this is, a, this is like their big chance. It also needs to be more lighthearted. I'm just like, I'm fucking, I'm out. The Ruiners are here. Oh, okay. we'll let the Ruiners in. Because I barely The follow. best case scenario, though, Tucson, is that they're only doing the reshoot similar to what they did with uh, Civil War is to interject Han Solo as they did with Spider-Man in Civil War. Yeah. Like, that's my only – that's the only – so it, it worked – but you know that's yeah that's, that's this it's is probably, my pet theory like it's I one just, of those things like we all saw the first trailer and I think most people genuinely really liked the I first trailer from Rogue One which I, I did as well it looked fucking beautiful I right agree. but it's okay but but there is that's no, Nick that's fine there is it's no okay, Nick I still love you <laughs> there there is no way in Disney's only opportunity to include Darth Vader in in their new Star Wars that they are not going to capitalize on that so mm, yeah. I'm interested to see it only because, think about that. Yeah. like, man, that like the the scene in um, Empire Strikes Back, and it's such a 
unnecessary scene. It, it it has no sort of change about the the great story, and and then the very interesting finale with with him throwing the emperor down the down the tube, even with that terrible George Lucas update with him screaming <laughs> no over and over whatever. Oh, oh God! Uh, but but the scene. When Han Solo and Chewbacca and Leia go into where they believe is a, a dinner with um, Lando Calrissian oh, mm-hmm. in The Empire Strikes Back, and the door is open, and Darth Vader is sitting at the head of the table like a father, <laughs> before we even find out. And, Whose and, father? And, and Han Solo starts shooting, and before Neo, he just puts his hand out and just directs away the, the lasers from it, and then they just all come in and sit down. It, it, look, this guy's totally in control of everything yet at the same time he's in control of nothing like Mm -hmm. it's just it's it's so conflicted and so interesting and yet he ends up being the fucking hero of the entire story because he kills the emperor like (laughs) it's it's crazy i would add on to this the strength of the character of that what makes that work um you you mentioned the expression the uncanny valley which is that Part of the uncanny value, which is that we need to see facial expressions to get, you know, uh, get a feeling. Like, so this is why we'd say Bane didn't really work, you know, because yeah. like, it's like, you know, so we never had, <laughs> we never had that discussion about Darth Vader. No. The, the the gravitas of his evil and his power was never in dispute, and I would agree absolutely, Alex. Yeah. That's a great choice. That absolutely, the lack villain. of that. Yes. Absolutely. Uh-huh. But it's 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 the voice, it's the the how tall he is as a character, and it's the unknown that really just drives of of who is this? Why why is this person here? Why is he so much bigger than everybody? Why I, does he have a red lightsaber? I will admit, it's fucking cool. I will admit that you know I'm not a Star Wars fan mm-hmm. per se, but watching the first Star Wars movie when I was a child, I remember distinctly like that opening scene with Darth Vader walking through the something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. What, the, the... Whatever it is with the stormtroopers and just instantly recognizing that he's a villain. And like, that's kind of hard to do when you really think about it. Like if you don't have people like calling him in or saying, let's, let's confer to the higher, whatever. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he can walk onto a screen into a franchise that is at that point only about, 47 seconds old, you know, uh, and, and it just conveys everything. So I, I agree that that's pretty much the pinnacle of what you can do, uh, with, with a a villain. And, and, and also too, as you have a character who just is so ominous in almost every scene and, and is something that you, you are interested and captivated by in, in every motion that goes through the entire story, whether it be the, the whole storyline between him being Luke and Leia's father to, to him being just in, in the first movie, a new hope being this someone who knows that Obi-Wan Kenobi is there. What the fuck's that all about? Like I, I, I can't even imagine as myself now as a fan of star Wars. And it's just as a fan of, of twists and film as it is going to see these films in their first run through the theater when, when they actually were just new and saying, why the fuck does he know who Obi-Wan Kenobi is? 
He's Luke's father? Like, I, I can't even imagine that being a real twist in Cena for the first time Homer in the theater. Homer Simpson leaving out of the theater with Mars. <laughs> like, man, I can't believe that Darth Vader turned out to be Luke Skywalker's father. Oh, you son of a bitch. Like, like, I love that scene from The Simpsons. Like, like, let's talk about twists that are just extremely commonplace these days, whether it be Fight Club, whether it be The Usual Suspects. Whether it be a film we just reviewed recently, like Civil War, which has this twist that not, whether it be good, whether it be not, whatever, it's there for you that uh, it, it involves Winter Soldier and Iron Man. The twists are just something that involves villains these days that are just uh, in almost Trite. every major film that is this something and seeing this, this incredible twist in, in one of the most iconic films of all time and getting to actually see it as it's happening real time in, in you know, that that age is, I can't even imagine what even that was like. Even one of mine, uh, Jigsaw, that was his whole MO, mm-hmm. was to to lay out one situation and then basically completely dupe the, both the players. And the, <laughs> he and gets the, his jugular slash and then, like, from out of the, 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 the blanket that he, that he has when he's lying on the hospital bed, he has another fucking tape recorder. I know. <laughs> And it's amazing. Nice. No, and, and I know I'm not saying that they're 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 well written, but I, I think that that, that that that's an, that is an extension of the folklore of what we want out of a villain. That that they are somehow ahead of us, not yes. just the, the the characters that are in the movie, for sure. Yeah, Darth Vader number one on my list, and honestly, it was never in doubt. <laughs> um, it, it, I, it just it just was you know I, I think it's probably been covered uh, in in your Star Wars discussions, but like how. Uh, from source material, how much George Lucas borrows from Joseph Campbell and all that. But one of the things I always thought that was kind of really effective of where he he pulled things from that, again, augments the evil of the Emperor and Darth Vader uh, is that George Lucas, like almost frame for frame, he would take elements from the propaganda films from the Nazis, Lenny Riefenstahl's Triumph of Will, where you see like these mass, perfectly, you know, uh, road Nazis uh, and the, the stormtroopers would be in, in similar uh, uh, order as well. So the fact that he would draft off of that for a fact, I mean, I think that's it's just, like, again, it's l- just, l- just l- iconography spine that feeds into that. our own fears. Yeah. Look, look at that and in, in say what you want about Return of the Jedi, which has many points that aren't great. But that incredible scene when the Emperor arrives and we see this just, just just field and that's vast it. that's of, that's Lenny of, Riefenstahl right there I, I mean, it, it's, it, yeah. it's one of those things as, as a film viewer seeing that and seeing the emperor walking down with his red troopers that are that are guiding him amongst this just field of white stormtroopers and Darth Vader at the same time who, who's who's leading the stormtroopers and, and and on his knee waiting for him to arrive is just whoo and then he kills him so there's that yeah. But, I mean, just even and, and, and even the fact that Darth would take a knee to this man. Was like, mm-hmm. Whoa! <laughs> so I remember when I saw that, like, what's going on here? Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's choice, laid the groundwork choice. for the entire Star Wars series, even the new ones. Yeah. So there you go. No doubt. All right, I'm going to go like way the other way. Uh, okay. From this, and I, I, again, I, this isn't Luke Skywalker. Yeah. <laughs> the real villain. Yeah. Not not even uh, close. Oh, so just uh, just quickly uh, honorable mentions. Uh, you had um, Kaiser Sosa. He was. Yes. I was batting him around yeah, a little bit. I wasn't yeah. sure because I had not reviewed the movie recently to know if I would put that on that. Uh, I also had. Um, I think Alex, you were talking. About, did you mention uh, John Doe from Seven? I think yeah. someone had mentioned. Mm-hmm. That yeah, that was here. one of my. Yeah, that same. He yeah. Was yeah. Like, and I, I had a whole thing. But you know what? I mean, honorable mention. He's out there just because. 
Um, the uh, idea that how, was, how about how about the idea really quickly if yeah, I can just sneak yeah, in really absolutely. quickly of a filmmaker as David Fincher, who's a uh, grandmaster for the most part at making films of keeping a uh, actor out of the credits for a film, which yeah. happens in the film seven. That is actually pretty refreshing. Yeah. It doesn't happen enough. Like mm. just because there's no reason to do it. And, and we live in this day and age that is a spoiler culture that I can't believe that more and more people don't. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many films I've watched where like, I'll see like, Oh, they're like, if it's a sequel to something or something like that. And I'll be like, Oh, they're in the, I the- can say though, the, the scene when they went to, I believe it, the sin was sloth. Was this the one where they, he was injecting the guy with uh, heroin for a year straight uh, when there's all the uh, scent, uh, you know, uh, blockers that were in the ceiling and all mm-hmm. that, that was probably the last time in a movie where I, I jumped out of my seat and had that visceral fear. You know, like wow, how did he do? That? I mean, that was just yeah. wow, amazing. So anyway, he would be an honorable mention. But yeah, I'm going to go a, a totally different direction with a, a villain, um, Jerry Lundegaard from uh, Fargo. Wow! And, and I'm going to say, like, how it does... And so, <laughs> yep. this... this I, I don't... There, there's something so attractive about a guy who could... You, you want to kind of like... He has all the sensibilities, that the, the, the Midwestern ethos of everything. Yet, at the end of the day, he's a used car salesman. Yeah. And, <laughs> and we can see how... It, I remember that scene of... of how he was trying to plead to uh, 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 when he was trying to like to get the scent off of uh, when um, I'm drawing a blank on the actress. Um, she the uh, Francis McDormand. Thank you. Yeah, that's it. Uh, when he was trying to throw her off the scent, and yet we know what he's done. We've known the consequence because at this point, I believe we know that his wife has been pushed through a wood chipper, <laughs> and, and so like all of this has been. We know this in the back of our mind, and yet. We're kind of like still, I don't know, kind of rooting for the guy in some weird way. But yet this is a terrible thing that he's done. Um, the fact that what we would normally think is probably a guy that would be, if I were to be on a bowling league or something like that, he would be the type of guy that I I'd might get a beer with. Be, exactly. What kind or, of serial killer would you get a beer with? <laughs> yeah, but, but just but he that, but he 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 resembles no pathology. He resembles no kind of motive necessarily than other than he was just kind of desperate and simple-minded, and yet he has put people through uns. Unspeakable violence as a consequence. Um, that's why he's on my list. He's and, very yeah. much a victim of like circumstance and context, right. which is, I think, and I, I think that's actually a fantastic pick because I think it makes it really creepy to watch because mm-hmm. we could see ourselves sometimes oh, in that. Right. Not because we would like to think that we would do the same things, but very much so, at least until up until the point uh, that things go awry, you know, he is, I would say, a pretty average person who just has a very bad idea. How, how about somebody who has no outs, too? It's is, yes. is, is something here where he's just yes. desperate. And we see his desperation in one of the most pathetic final scenes ever where he kind of, you know, says, oh, I'll be right there. And then they burst in and, he, and his underwear is like trying to sneak out through the window and yeah. he's like screaming and waving his arms and, oh man, yeah. that is, that is, that's a great I gotta pick. say, I have a question for you, yes. Brian. Mm. Have you watched the, the TV series at all? Absolutely, yeah. 
And, and so are you a fan of, just not that we have to talk about TV, mm. but we've done it before. Yeah. Uh, are you a fan of uh, the Lester character from the very first season? The I, Mark, I thought... I, the Mark I, Absolutely. Freeman. I thought he was he drafted off of that like, yes. quite, quite well. I thought that was even, an even more disturbing version yeah, of that. Agreed, both agreed. a pomp and circumstance of like, yeah. like, he started this weirdly sympathetic person, and then he makes one choice... And everything just falls yeah. apart, and, and, and it's, it's, it's in the same vein. As I don't know how they pulled it off, but they did. I mean, the, yeah. the new series is actually quite good. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But, but yeah. no, but the movie is fantastic, and that character. And, and you know, I, wanted, I mean, and that was, that was a wonderfully pathetic scene, you know, when he was, <laughs> like, just trying to barter his way out of, you know, the knot. You're like, oh, just yeah. be right there. We know what's going on. <laughs> but, I mean, one of the scenes, uh, do you remember when he was just pathetically scraping away at the and he just loses his shit? And he just, and, and, like, that was... I, I remember that, you know, like that, that, that there was, uh, that was, so yeah, that would be, yeah. but it was the, um, like you said, the, like the, having no outs, which is like a simple minded guy, probably normally whatever, but he's, he was in a moment of desperation. He knew of people who could have accomplished what he needed, but he knew that he had this very wealthy father-in-law that was able to, so it was like, he just tried to make this connection, and it just had the worst possible outcome. So, yeah. yet, um, Which showed so. his true color, because we can't say that who he is in the movie is like only a victim, like I said, mm-hmm. only a victim of circumstance, because he's the kind of person who apparently does react in the way that he does. But that's what makes it creepy, is that you know these unseen, I don't think even he knows that about himself you know, before that movie starts, and that, that's what makes it just so both darkly funny, but also just... Uh, because we have him who like stumbles into this, which is like he bump, he stumbles, bumbles, and all that, and then we definitely have the Stormar... Stormare? Peter, Peter Stormare? Stormare. Like, him and Steve Buscemi, yeah, what like, a great <laughs> Team oh, that yeah. those guys There's are. no doubt where on the psychopath spectrum he lies. Like <laughs> oh, there is yeah. no blinking in yep. this guy's evil, right? And I think that's what I love about the uh, the, the 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 collusion of those two characters. It, in this. It's funny though too because of that. Uh, that duo in that film with him and Steve Buscemi, who Steve Buscemi is just a fabulous actor oh. who I love pretty much every role he's yeah, in, good, no bad, whatever. I I love him in it. Uh, you know, he seems to be the brains of the operation, even though he's a complete idiot. Uh, at the same time, though, he reaches the end of his rope towards the end of the film when he's just been shot. He's driving out of uh, the airport parking garage, and he gets to the to the gate, and the guy wants him to pay, and he just fucking shoots him. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like there, there, there's, there's in yeah. in he's he's always a talker and not wanting people to to do things more than they already have, and he just fucking shoots the guy, and it's just it's so Even unlike he has his limits. <laughs> it's so unlike his character, yeah. but that that film is just full of villainous characters and led by Jerry Lundergaard, who is just. The most Minnesotan villain of all time, but boy, he is oh, he is something. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. All right, Tucson, you have the last villain on our all list, right. so so Better make it a good, good one. Yeah. All right. Um. So I'm just going to mention one honorable mention. I was going to include uh, Ben Wishaw's uh, portrayal of Jean Baptiste Grenouille from the film uh, Perfume: The Story of a Murderer, because mm. that is actually an adaptation of one of my absolute favorite books of all time. It's one of the most beautifully written books I've ever read. Um, ben Wishaw's great, by the way. Yeah, he's, he's he's great, but I don't know if he and and he's great in that role, but I don't feel like he really encompasses what uh, Jean Baptiste Grenouille was supposed to be. He's he was supposed to like 
in, in, in the actual book, uh, Baptiste is sort of like the inverse of Quasimodo from Hunchback of Notre Dame. He's supposed to be this very um, unsightly person, but otherwise he has this incredible ability about himself that just happens to position him in the, the most perfect time for which to uh, develop his pathology and his eventual like rise into becoming a monster. Um, but my actual number one is someone that actually – Surprised me, and I actually recently rewatched this film. Uh, it was uh, Sergei Lopez as Captain Vidal from Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, okay. Uh, that was in my honorable mentions as well. Yeah, that that villain. I have not uh, j- just to give this context. I have not seen Pan's Labyrinth since it was on DVD when I first watched it in high school. So around like. 2017 2000 no no 2007 2008 like around that time and there as soon as i knew that we were doing a villains episode the image of captain vidal holding up two farmers who are out hunting for rabbits taking out a bottle from one of their bags that he confiscated and then taking the young man aside hitting him across the face and then proceeding to use the bottom of the bottle in order to smash open his no to smash in his 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 nose to graphic effect um was probably one of the most affecting and one of the most enraging and horrifying scenes i've ever seen in a film um so much so that it it was ingrained in my mind from as far back as then so i knew that i had to rent the movie and rewatch it again, which I had a totally different experience to it. I was just horrified in general. I wasn't, <laughs> but the fact that it flared up so much anger in me that I was able to hate this person from the get go when they did that. It's like, he is the, he's pretty much the, 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 the consummate authoritarian. He's this guy who ships Ophelia and uh, her mother because she's carrying a uh, Vidal's child and stuff. Cause some other circumstances about the film that I'm not going to talk about. Um, and basically, he does not care for this woman at all. He only cares that uh, her, his son be born where where he is born, and he only cares so far as much as she is able to deliver that child. Like if the if the woman has to die, then at least my child will live. Um, and honestly, the the ending for him in that he dies at the hand of the the rebels that like he he's been fighting against the entire movie, and they take the child because he wants the child to live, and they they will take care of the child. And basically, he just looks down at his watch because he's so meticulous. He's so he, – everything has to be made to a regiment. Everything has to be so specific. Like he's, he's so in line with that. And he's like, I want you to tell my son when, he, when I die. He's like, I want you to tell him. And then uh, Mercedes, who was the secret informant the entire time for, for the rebels, says, no, he will not even know your name. And then shoots him in the head. I thought that was – yeah. that was – like – if that was anyone else, that would be the harshest, cruelest thing to say to somebody. But I think that he deserves it. He so deserves it. The most heartbreaking thing you could say possible that your child won't even know your name or your face. Fuck you, man. Yes. Kill that guy. I mean, that that, that was oh. his last moment of consciousness. To yes. know that, that his hubris was set up for that, only to have mm-hmm. the rug swept underneath his mm-hmm. feet. That's what made it so and fantastic. The, and the, and the yeah. fact, especially when Mercedes is, uh, is, is being held captive and he's about to... Um, to torture her, she has the knife, she saws her way through, stabs him in the back, stabs him in the shoulder, and then takes... Like the knife puts it in his actual like mouth and says like if you touch that girl I fucking kill you and like like spit you like a pig and then proceeds to just like slash the side of his face and I'm just like yes <laughs> finish the job wow 
Yeah. Okay. Finish him. Yeah. Should have done. Well, it. I mean, I think it's it's rare that we get that level of satisfaction of mm-hmm. justice in a movie where it's like not only was he physically punished, but he was karmically punished as mm-hmm. well by the words. We know that the physical damage is what it is, but that that was the last thing in his mind, which is like, yeah. fuck, that's all I had was that. Yeah. So yeah, I gotta say. Uh, the, this character was on my honorable mention. The misunderstanding that I almost included them, but I, hmm. it's been so long since I've seen it that mm-hmm. I couldn't really remember a lot of details about his arc, and so to speak. Right. But it, you talking about it, it, do, it does remind me of uh, one of the ones that I included on my list with uh, the Night of the Hunter. As far as both of those movies remind me of the ideal of like like a children's film. Uh, infiltrated by sadism and and adults abusing their power yes. and, and like how that's like the even though it wasn't my even number one as to like my parallel but like that's that truly is one of the most terrifying things you can do as a villain so to speak mm-hmm. and to be a child yeah. in that sort of situation and to see that and yeah. and and like exactly exactly in that same role like and to be able to see that and nobody else believes you yep. or can do anything about it and especially in something like Pan's Labyrinth because the difference between something like what I cited and what you're talking about now is that it, in Pan's Labyrinth it's it's something that inf- it kind of infects their imagination too mm-hmm. like it's not just relegated to the uh, physical realm and the reality that they live in but also these this, this fantastical world that they kind of that she escapes to and goes through is also tainted by this real-world authoritative uh, uh, presence, which is just really, really... It's hard to watch. It when, is. When, it when, is. You, when you put yourself in, in her shoes, mm-hmm. and it becomes this fairy tale that undoes itself and is really disturbing. Yeah. Can I say, uh, we're getting to honorable mentions here at the yeah. end, as, as, as we're bringing this episode to a right. close. Uh, somebody that I'm surprised that nobody brought up is uh, the character... Thanos. <laughs> Boy, had to do son it, son of a bitch. Uh, the the person that I'm, I'm speaking of, the character that I'm surprised that nobody even made a mention of earlier in this film, whether they be on their list or honorable mentions or whatever, is a uh, Javier Bardem's character of Shiger in the film No Country for Old mm. Men. Who is an he, absolutely fabulous villain. He is fantastic, but at but. The, at the same time, uh, that is, in my opinion, one of the most overrated films that the Coen brothers have ever done. Just because I feel like it's just there's nothing that absolutely fantastic this. about it. But. I'll say this as to why it wasn't mentioned today, as far as what I can feel at least. That I think he's fantastic. At- in that movie and mm-hmm. that he's pretty much does exactly what he needs to. But yeah. what's great about him as a villain is his non-entity presence. He, yeah. he doesn't leave an impression but except... Yet, I was going like, to say, but yet... He, no, no, but like yeah. on a scene-by-scene basis, he does. But his way of not conforming to an archetype and, and, and to a mold that we normally, shall we say, reserve for these kind of roles is what's most creepy about him. And he, but at the same time, though, what I'm surprised that nobody even like faintly mentioned him is that you get that absolutely just horrifying final scene with him and Kelly McDonald where he walks out of the house and and we see that yeah. just just, you know scary final scene where he walks away from her and 
He's just a and his hair man in that film. <laughs> Holy fuck, it's good. Like you go from that to, <laughs> you go from that to Ridley Scott's uh, film, The Counselor, The Counselor, Ooh. which is uh, a little different. Little uh, boy, and Javier Bardem is at, has had quite the career, but man, won the Oscar for that film and quite deserved because yeah. his character of Shiger is just a, I, a a psychopath. I would I would offer if 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 you like source material is to you know try to read more Cormac McCarthy, which is the author of this and uh, He's such a fucking good writer <laughs> thank you okay keep it in your pants <laughs> blood meridian is on my i mean if you want to read a book that is like of a, a, a level of beauty and violence that is uh, unreal i mean there are there's there's scenes in this book where it's like i'll go through it i was like i have to put this down and just process and just what i've just read yeah he's of that level and it is uh it is profound so yeah. Uh, and I think that's part of I think part of the anticipation of of uh, of that is that, is that audiences are are still waiting for it. And I hope they never make a Blood Meridian movie because mm-hmm. I just don't think that they could. I'm sure it'll be done at some point. I think there have been some rumblings that James Franco wants to like. Oh God, fuck you, James oh, Franco! Stop. I'm sorry, I hate to say it, but oh, it's, that's he's been like one of the you know, people that have been clamoring for that Those right are, to do it. But, that's like one of two people celebrities that I just absolutely. They just rub me the fucking wrong way. You know, like, right I, here, right here. I fucking hate thank James you. Franco, and I fucking hate Will. I am from the Black Eyed Peas. Thank, thank you <laughs> for that. And, and, I, 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 I can't imagine that 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 Cormac McCarthy would relinquish like his magnum opus to him. I mean, he's had the Cone Brothers, he's had Ridley Scott do the Counselor. So I, I don't <laughs> think like his best work to go to this. Unproven quantity or entity. So I just don't he did see that it. great job hosting the Oscars. So there's that. Hey, I actually kind of enjoyed that because please you know, stop, please stop I, right I, now. Please no, stop. but the Oscars are such a sham that at least somebody was given a truthful, uh, shall we say, <laughs> level of enthusiasm. Okay. What? Okay, that's fine. Would the Oscars really be I mean, no in the it, format it just, that they just, are? Uh, My honorable mention for for a villain is Nick Cheney for his endorsement. <laughs> the, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I said I enjoyed it, not that I endorsed. I I, I, I I know that you have quite a few James Franco roles, Nick, that you like. Well, um, but but it, it's it's to the point on, where where I and he's a horrible horrible actor. I usually enjoy more Dave Franco roles than James Franco. That's sad. I know. Let, let, let me just is. say this though. Hold on. Uh, James Franco is in one of the greatest television programs of all time. Freaks and Geeks. Freaks and Geeks, mm-hmm. where yeah. he played one of the greatest characters of television of all time uh, as Daniel Desario, as the kind of misunderstood freak of uh, of the bunch. And He's done stuff since then. Though. I'm not saying he's never done a bad role. He's done yeah. a lot of bad roles. But <laughs> I think he's such a weird wild card that I, I don't hate him because I, I always kind of want to know what he's going to do next. It's not about hating him. It's just it's, I feel like he's uh, gotten to the point where... Like you guys. Well, it, it's gotten to the point with you James high Franco over your displeasure. Okay, that's fine. It's I gotten to the point with, with James Franco where I hear he's involved with a project and I immediately am disinterested. I will admit also, as far as why I'm still burning that flame, not because I like want to Don't see say what, Spring Breakers. No. I know you like that film. A lot of people do. I love that movie and I like him in it, but no, yeah. not because of that. But because I will admit that his role in This is the End did show me, in my opinion, that he is self aware. Whether mm. you hate him, that's fine. But I think he knows that he is also this pretentious douchebag, and he—he—that's uh, what it's going to be. Okay, he's the real villain. True, James Franco in True. Hollywood. Yeah. 
Okay. All well, right. I, I, I think I think we have have, have covered. I like our lists. I I, really I, do. I do as well. Even people outside our list, we we've gone a lot over the map, and we even spent a Sterling. I was going to just say we spent a good majority of uh, of the mid part of this episode talking about Rod Sterling. As every episode, not a villain in any way, shape, or form. I mean, maybe he was if you want to really read between the Whoa. lines <laughs> of like those that maybe he was the you know force that was causing. Okay. All right. Well, and and that does conclude our our top six villains list. Thank you very much to uh, to my Brian. My pleasure. This is a blast as always. Oh yeah, yes. this was yeah. great having no, you. It was a blast for us. Uh, oh, well, I was just going to say, a blast from the past. <laughs> Please okay. don't bring up Brendan Fraser. We <laughs> very much enjoy having you on our episode. So thank you very much for joining anytime, us again, Brian. Anytime. And coming up on our next episode, which is episode 69, uh, surprisingly, <laughs> su- 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 surprisingly is it's a, uh, a summer film and, a, and a, a children's film, and it's a Disney film. Summer of 69. That's not where I was going with that, but thank you. Uh, we're going to talk about the Disney sequel, which is Finding Dory, uh, a very interesting choice for a sequel, a long time in the making. Uh, for Disney and Pixar, and uh, there there is something to the to the uh, to the thought that Disney decided to make an entire film around a character who was completely mindless through the the first film. So hey, she wasn't mindless; she was just absent-minded. Yeah, have okay. you never seen Memento before? Okay, served. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see. Just keep what... tattooing. Just keep tattooing. That okay. was like, just keep swimming, but yeah. it's tattoo instead. Because okay. Of, because of Memento. So anyways, on next week's episode, we'll talk about Finding Dory. And, I have to find uh, another podcast that appreciates my jokes. Aww. You're going to be looking for a while. So anyways, <laughs> something to look forward to on next episode. And, and please, if you have a top six villains uh, uh, list, we'd love to have you sent along to us so we can read it on an upcoming episode. So send that along to filmtankshow.com. Sorry, filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can find our episodes on filmtankshow.com or on iTunes. And you can always get a hold of us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at filmtankshow. So from Brian Turnbaugh, thank you again very much for joining us on this episode. To Sonny again, Nick Cheney, myself, Alex Diekman, thank you very much as always for joining us on this episode of Film Tank, and we'll catch up with you next time. Thank <laughs> you.